Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I think it's a secret that of all the shows that are on during the week, on all the stations that I'm being heard on right now, and our footprint is growing uh, consistently and by leaps and bounds, and I appreciate that, but I don't think it's a secret that if you look at the lineup on all the stations that we're on right now, I actually talk about politics the least of anybody, and that's by design. I feel like by the time... The early morning hours roll around. You're looking to get a little bit of a break from 20 straight hours of political discussion. That being said, when we do talk politics, we try to bring you a different perspective, a perspective maybe you hadn't heard or hadn't considered. And uh, one of the things that I try to do is when Congress is dealing with an issue that might not be on the front page, I try to A, make you aware of it. B, uh, give you my take on the issue and explain, C, why I came to the conclusion that I have. Well, one of the things that I think is very interesting now, and I think it gives us a good opportunity to talk about it, is that last week, Congressman Ralph Norman, Republican of South Carolina, and Senator Rafael Edward Cruz, Republican of Texas, introduced a constitutional amendment imposing term limits on Congress. I thought this might be as good of an opportunity as any to delve into the term limits issue. This is not the first time in the modern era that uh, term limits have been proposed. The House voted on a similar uh, similar proposal several times between 1995 and and 1997. Back then, I remember that. Term limits was part of the contract with America, and I was opposed to term limits back then for all the reasons that people who are opposed to term limits cite. However, I have watched Washington over the course of the last almost three decades, and I've come to believe that term limits is not a panacea. Term limits is it does have some bad stuff that comes with it, but I think if the choice is term limits or the status quo, absolutely am I taking term limits. So the proposal that Congressman Norman and Senator Cruz have submitted, that would allow a two-term limit for U.S. senators and I believe a six-term limit for members of the House. So it would be 12 years. That is not what I would prefer. I'd prefer it a little bit more. I'd prefer 18 years, but I could deal with 12. I could deal with 12. I think that's uh, I think that's a fair amount. So why? 
for starters, I feel like, and this is reflected in the conversations that I've had in the congressional alumni panel discussions that we've had with Anthony Weiner, Thaddeus McCotter, and uh, David Jolly and others. I feel like most people, Democrat, Republican, whatever, conservative, liberal, moderate, they do go to Washington with the best of intentions. They do go to Washington to genuinely try to improve their communities and to represent their communities. But when you get into that Washington bubble, you just get into this go along to get along mentality. You go into this groupthink where you come to believe that it's less and less possible for you to actually get things done. And you almost become accustomed to gridlock. And you become accustomed to just kind of not really doing much except using whatever you're working on to raise money for your own reelection and to better yourself. Get yourself on TV. Get yourself in the papers. uh, Get yourself a committee chairmanship. Get yourself a lot of social media followers, although that's relatively new. And I think people tend to take their eye off the ball on why their constituents sent them there. Additionally, I think you kind of lose touch. If you take someone that is riding the subway to work every day or taking the ferry to work or taking mass transit to work or sitting in traffic on the way to work every day and compare that to someone who's not, I'll take the person who's sitting in traffic in terms of having a better idea of what their constituents are going through. Additionally, I think that um, people just get too comfortable. People with the advantages of incumbency, they're much less likely to have competitive elections. And I think competitive elections are a good thing. With term limits, whether it's 12 years or 18 years, you do get open seats. When there are open seats, there are generally competitive elections in both the primary and, depending on the district, in the general election as well. I think those are good for the voters. I totally appreciate the drawbacks of term limits. The empowerment of the staffs, the less competent politicians that are then in charge of the uh, legislative process, the fact that uh, you lose a lot of good people with term limits as well, the fact that uh, you are, in some respects, robbing the voters of a choice to keep someone in the office forever if they want to. I appreciate all that. And look, those are all real concerns. And I have very little to say in response to them, except for the fact that the way things are going in Washington now is totally broken, and I'm for changing it. And term limits is an instrument of change. So I am for it, and uh, I am very, very pleased uh, with this uh, amendment that's been proposed. Now, the reality of the situation is this amendment has very little likelihood of being enacted. The only way it has even a chance of being enacted and this is one of the reasons why I'm talking about it, is if there's this popular groundswell of support in favor of it. Then, all of a sudden, if you see term limit uh, challengers start threatening to run against incumbents or actually running against incumbents, then all of a sudden you'll see uh, Congress start to sing a different tune. I think the only way on a practical level that it could actually be implemented, because, look, the people in Congress now are never going to vote themselves out of a job. The only way on a practical level it could ever actually be implemented is if you grandfather in everyone that's there now. If you say, all right, if you're in Congress now, you're exempt, but prospectively, 
every new member of Congress must be subjected to term limits. In New Jersey, that's what they did with the dual office holding. Those of you that follow New Jersey politics, you might be aware of this. There was a huge problem that everyone in New Jersey practically had five or six elected positions. The state senator was also the mayor. The The mayor was also the county executive. It was absurd. It was absurd. You had these politicians winning four or five elections, all cashing checks, which were all little salaries, but they added up to a decent salary and accumulating a large amount of power. The people didn't want it, so they did get rid of it in New Jersey, but they were only able to do it by grandfathering in the people that are there now. That's why in New Jersey you still see a few people who are both the state senator and the mayor of Union or the uh, state senator and the mayor of Woodridge, whatever the case may be. And I think that's the only way on a practical level that it's going to be enacted in Congress. That is my hope. I think that uh, there are a lot of changes that need to be made to the electoral process. I think term limits is one out of 50. And for all the reasons that the president was term limited and all the reasons that the Congress voted to implement uh, term limits for the presidency, those same reasons exist for the Senate Majority Leader. And the Speaker of the House and the Senate Major- and the Senate Minority Leader and the House Majority Leader and the House Majority Whip and everybody in the congressional leadership. Now, if you're a backbencher and you haven't acquired much seniority and you're not a committee chairman, now how much is Washington really going to improve by uh, getting rid of you after three terms or four terms? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. I think it is, I think it is a positive that new people be given an opportunity to serve. I recognize the drawbacks and I acknowledge them. Everything is right. But I think on balance, term limits would be a tremendous improvement. And I'm for it. So I'm glad that uh, Ted Cruz and Ralph Norman uh, are pushing this. And look, there was a lot of Democrats that have been for term limits over the years as well. And I'd love to see them make this an issue as well. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment, if you want to agree, you want to disagree. But just like I said when um, when I learned that it looks like there's actually going to be a House vote on the fair tax, what I view that as is an opportunity to educate the public about what the fair tax is, give a discussion about the pluses and minuses of it, and then let people decide for themselves. That's what I'm hoping to do now With this term limits discussion, because I think in some respects, term limits is a much easier thing for people to grasp because we do have it for the president. And we have a lot of local uh, levels as well. The mayor of New York City, for instance, the city council members in New York City, those are all term limited. The governor of New Jersey is term limited. You have a lot of local office holders that are term limited. So it's not exactly a foreign concept to most people listening, but some of the arguments may be foreign. 800-848-9222. And I'll be honest, I am no great fan of Ted Cruz. I thought that the, uh, I thought he had some good ideas when he ran for president, but I thought that the criticism that Donald Trump and others leveled at him during the presidential race was right on the money. That being said, I think the attacks on him for proposing a two-term limit are totally unfair and totally baseless. What do we mean by that? Well, Ted Cruz is running for re-election to a third term. And some people are saying he's hypocritical because he's advocating for a two-term limit while running for a third term. I don't think that, that at all. 
I mean, it's almost like saying, well, if you're for campaign finance reform, you have a problem with people that are running for office trying to raise a lot of money. No, you propose rules as you wish they were. You play the game as it is. You know, in baseball, I happen to be totally opposed to the designated hitter rule. But if I'm taking over as the manager of a baseball team, unless I have uh, Shohei Otani on that team, I'm not going to say, oh, well, I'm opposed to the designated hitter in concept. I'm going to make my pitcher bat even though I have an option for a designated hitter. No, it makes no sense. And I find the criticism and the kind of the gotcha politics that people are trying to play with Cruz totally unfair and unfounded. That's my belief. You may disagree. So uh, you could be totally against term limits. You could be totally for term limits. You could be for term limits but have a problem with Ted Cruz seeking a third term. But um, tell me what you think. Or you could have a question about it, right? Maybe you have a genuine question about congressional term limits and how it would work. 800-848-9222. This is from CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday where Ted Cruz was trying to answer that question about why He is seeking a third term while proposing that people should not be able to serve a third term. Here was uh, Ted Cruz on Face the Nation. Uh, Senator, I want to ask you about something here at home. You also introduced a bill to limit uh, terms to two six-year terms in office for senators. Um, Why aren't you holding yourself to that standard? You said you're running for a third term. Well, listen, I'm a passionate defender of term limits. I think that Congress would work much better if every senator were limited to two terms, if every House member were limited to three terms. I've introduced a constitutional amendment to put that into the Constitution. But you're still running. And if and when it passes, if and when it passes, I will happily, happily comply. I've never said I'm going to unilaterally comply. I'll tell right. you what, when the are socialists and when the swamp are ready to leave Washington, I will be more than happy to comply by the same rules that apply for everyone. But until then, I'm going to keep fighting for 30 million Texans because that's the job they've asked me to do. I completely agree with him. And to me, that rationale makes perfect sense. 800-848-9222. You can agree. You can disagree. Or you can comment as you see fit. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. John, I got you. Initially, yeah, hey, can you hear me? Yep, I got you. Initially, I was uh, all for term limits because when I look at, uh, if you look at Joe Biden, who's been in there for life, Chucky Schmucky Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, they've all gotten filthy rich and, you know, off of uh, senator salary. It's ridiculous, but... They're so old. They're out of touch with everything, and they, you know, they shouldn't be serving that long. But on on the same, like, I, I just thought about this while I was waiting for you uh, to speak with you. What if somebody's actually trying to like do good though, and they're like a well, that happens all the time. It's a good politician, right? I mean, like, that happens all the time. You are going to lose a lot of good elected officials. It's not, you know, there's no way to say, all right, only the bad politicians are term limits or the ones that you perceive as bad, and only the good ones get to say. And that is precisely the argument 
that opponents of term limits point to. They say, look, I love, uh, let's say, Peter King, for instance. Why should I not be able to vote for Peter King every two years? To deny me the opportunity to vote for Peter King or whomever your favorite politician is, that is, um, you know, an infringement upon my freedom as a voter. And you know what? It's absolutely true. But I I still look at what's going on in Washington, and I think on balance— Term limits would not make things worse, and I think it may make things better by having new people get in there who are a little bit more in touch with the average voter. I would agree with that, and I would also think maybe they should start um, for people who are there more than two terms. They they need to start auditing them and making sure that nothing uh, bad's happening. Like I said, people are going in as senators and coming out millionaires. It's a uh, Yeah, unfortunately, and thanks for the call, John, unfortunately, that is a broader problem, and it's not a new problem. You want to look at uh, Lyndon Johnson, lifelong public servant, who, look, did a lot of good things as president, a lot of bad things, but um, he, his whole life was was a public servant. How did he manage to get rich on a public servant's salary his whole life? But he was one of the wealthiest uh, uh, presidents that we've had, certainly in the 20th century, not compared to Kennedy or or uh, somebody like Donald Trump, but certainly in comparison to someone like Harry Truman and others, absolutely, super wealthy. You really shouldn't be uh, in public service to get rich. And I think that points to a broader problem, which we could talk about. Uh, because it is uh, something that concerns me as well. 800-848-9222. Alex, we've got a pair of Alexes on the line here. Let me say a little Alex in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking the call. By the way, Joe Biden is the president right now, and he's pretty freaking rich because of his public service, you know, to to our country. But so Ted Cruz, he comes across the sound. I know, but that's that's what I'm saying. It's not a it's not a new phenomenon. This goes back uh, for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. Right. But uh, Ted Cruz comes across as sounding very hypocritical. But really what he's saying is the reason why he wants term limits is not because of him, because when you have these senators that are there for too many years, then you have the establishment situation, which he says he's not a part of. So since he doesn't see himself as the problem, he doesn't think that he you know, shouldn't be able to run for a third term. But here's the thing. Ted Cruz, I don't believe that he means this seriously. He's proposing this because he's a smart politician. And I, I know for certain that if he would know that if he proposes this, this bill could actually pass. He would not put it up for – he would not propose this kind of bill because Ted Cruz wants to stay in office as a senator until he can run for president in 2028 because that's what he's looking for. If he if he has to go out of being a senator, he's not going to be able to make it to be the president well, of the United States in the future. A couple of things, Alex, and uh, you, know, you made a couple of interesting points. One, uh, let's say Cruz is doing this for the reasons that you ascribe to him, the motives that you ascribe to them. And it's not because it's something he really believes in. It's done purely for politics. That's possible. You know, he is a politician. And chances are politicians do do things that are politically motivated once in a while. You know what I say to that? Makes no difference. I'm still glad that he's proposing it. And I'm glad that uh, term limits are a popular political issue because that's why I'm having this discussion with you now. Because that's the only way term limits will ever be implemented on a national level, if there is a widespread popular uprising of people that know about this and advocate for it. There are all these idiotic rules that and laws that we've had in place 
for a long time that until the public is aware of them, until they call them out and demand that their representatives call them out, they stay there. For instance, you know until a few years ago how much the National Football League paid in taxes? Any idea? Zero. They paid nothing in taxes. Nothing. And it wasn't because of fiscal trickery or anything like that. There was a special carve-out, a special tax exemption for professional football leagues. There wasn't one for baseball, but the NFL got to pay nothing in taxes. People learned about this, and they demanded change. And you know what? Change came. Uh, Up until a few years ago, the Democrats and Republicans would get hundreds of millions of dollars, the political parties themselves, to put on their national conventions every four years. The public ultimately learned about this, and you know what? People change their tune. So if you have a situation where all sorts of anti- or or pro-term limit candidates are running for office all over the country, then the people that are there now are going to be frightened into actually doing something about the term limits issue. And uh, as far as what you indicated that if Cruz was not in the first of all I think there's a chance Cruz might run for president next year you notice he didn't really answer the question um you know the, fully there but I don't think it's a deal breaker if a politician is not currently in office I think in some ways it actually helps you're not bound to run down to Washington for major votes. You're not being forced to take uh, votes on major pieces of legislation that have a bunch of different things in them that are going to hurt you in a presidential campaign. And we've seen – I think there's new rules when it comes to presidential campaigning. You saw with Donald Trump that you don't ever have to have held elective office in order to uh, in order to get elected. Joe Biden was not an, uh, sitting anything. At the time that he was elected, he was a private citizen. Hillary Clinton, when she was the Democratic nominee in 2016, she had a lengthy career in public service, but she was a private citizen. In uh, 2012, Willard Mitt Romney, he chose not to run for reelection as governor of Massachusetts because he wanted to run for president. Nobody said to him at the time that he was running, oh, you're not in office anymore. We're not going to elect you. They didn't elect Willard Mitt Romney for different reasons. Thank goodness. But um, in uh, 2000, in 2000, uh, you know, look, it goes back. There's all sorts of Bob Dole actually left the U.S. Senate while he was running for president to give the full uh, energy necessary for his campaign. So I don't agree with that aspect of what you said. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Papa drove a truck nearly all his life. You know it drove mama crazy being a trucker's wife. The part she couldn't handle was a being alone. I guess she needed more to hold than just a telephone. Papa called Mama each and every night just to ask her how she was and if his kids were all right. Mama would wait for that call to come in, but when Daddy'd hang up, she was gone again. The great Garth Brooks uh, singing "Papa Loved Mama." Uh, today is Garth Brooks' birthday. Sixty-one years old today. Can you believe it? Garth Brooks, one of the many great performers. 
who got his start on the uh, Joe Franklin show. When he was went on the Joe Franklin show, he was selling boots for a living. That is not an exaggeration. That is the God's honest truth. And uh, look at him today. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say he's one of the most famous, most successful country music artists in the entire world. Uh, happy birthday, Garth Brooks. Now, speaking of Papa, uh, I got, you know, I'm on a group text message with my father, my wife, my stepmother, my three siblings, and their respective significant others. So I got word yesterday that... Um, that, uh, you know, I, I'll spare you the details of this whole group text. But I got word yesterday that uh, my father, who's in Florida, he spends about a month, he and his his wife spend about a month in Florida during the winter. They do different things. They hang out down there. You know, he's pretty much retired now. So, not pretty much. He is retired. So, he you know, chills out. He plays golf. He runs. He has dinner with people. They go on rides and stuff. So I get word yesterday that um, my father tested positive for COVID yesterday morning. So he has, uh, he started with cold symptoms two days ago, and yesterday he tested positive for COVID. So far, he's feeling like he has a mild cold. Now, I'm not worried at all. I mean, again, you're always worried about your family, but I'm not worried at all about his health. I mean, um, he is not only triple boosted, he's got every vaccination there is, but he also has the kind of physique – I mean, he's in the kind of shape – he's basically in the shape of a marathon athlete, right? He he works out like crazy, very careful with what he eats. Uh, I think if he has two vices, it's a little bit of booze and, you know, more than an occasional cigar. But uh, he's in incredible shape. So I, I'm not worried at all about this being a long-term issue. But – you know, everybody is saying, all right, you know, good luck. Oh, no, I'm glad he's fully vaxxed. And so I don't see all these SMS text messages until later in the day, right? And my father, who's not a big texter at all, he says to this group text of the the eight of us, he says, Frank, so my wife says, oh, no, I hope it passes quickly. My sister says, oh, no, I'm glad he's fully vaxxed. And my father says... Frank, just in case, quotation marks, there are three books in the bookcase. Take them back to the library. Now, obviously, that's not true. There are no three books in the bookcase to take back to the library. But I got the impression, and so did everyone else on this group text, that this was some allusion to a film or to a book that I'm supposed to get. So clearly, and I think that's what it is, clearly this is a film that I know. I, my initial thought was that it was Arthur or something, maybe the scene with Hobson when Hobson is uh, talking to uh, Arthur, Dudley Moore's character, when he's on his deathbed. But I couldn't find that quote. So my question for you, and this is a serious question, is does anybody know what that's from? Uh, again, the quote is, just in, Frank, just in case, there are three books in the bookcase. Take them back to the library. It almost sounds like something from Monty Python or maybe even a Mel Brooks or Woody Allen movie. But for the life of me, I can't figure it out. And I did look online, and I'm a pretty good Googler. I Google with the best of them. I would, I would hold my Google skills up 
to any radio professional, talk show host, or producer in the entire country, both in terms of speed and accuracy. And yet, I'm not able to find that. What is that from? Because he didn't just make it up. He wouldn't have put quotation marks around it if he just made it up. What's it from? 800-848-9222, or you can email me. My email is frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Speaking of email, we will go through your email and your snail mail next hour. If you have any email that you would like read, please send it to me. By the way, anybody that emails me, you should just um, assume that that is fodder for being read on the air. Unless you specifically say, do not read this on the air, assume that that is going to be read. Okay? Just just so you know. FYI. Because my whole life is basically people telling me things and me learning things and me repeating them on the air. And let me announce this as a general rule to my friends, to anybody that I encounter. If you don't want something said on the radio, when you tell me, say off the record or don't say this or whatever. But, uh, you know, I'm just so over everyone that I know telling me these interesting stories and then all of a sudden acting shocked when I repeat them on the air. No, I'm going to repeat them on the air. You know why? Because... Life is preparation and fodder for this show. 800-848-9222. We're talking about term limits and this uh, legislation, not legislation, but this proposed constitutional amendment that um, Ted Cruz and Congressman Norman have submitted. And I think it's a good idea. I'm for it, even though I know it is not a panacea and it comes with drawbacks. I'd like to see term limits coupled with a bunch of other electoral reforms as well. But I think term limits is one that has popular support. We've seen how it's worked out on a national level with the presidency. We've seen how it's worked out on a local level with mayors and governors, and I think the people have a thorough understanding of what it would do. At least I hope they do. Do you? 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to, let's see, who's been holding the line? Curtis in North Carolina. Hey, Curtis, did you get a look at that balloon? No, I did not. All right, well, Um, you you missed your opportunity. I don't have cable. I don't have internet. Um, I save 100% on the doing without plan. Well, no, I was talking about, I thought maybe you looked up and saw the balloon. Wasn't looking for it. I heard about it on the radio, but that's it. Good for you. Good for you, Curtis. What's on your mind? All right. Let's talk about the real case against term limits, because it is not going said at all anywhere. Um, We have the 15 states that are now, that are now term limited. What's happening is the Gateses, the Soroses. So we're not talking about just a couple of names here. We're talking about a few thousand people. Uh, but we're talking about top financial, political financial movers are sending their lobbyists out to where the seats are going to be vacated by the force of the term limit. Um, they're seen, sending their lobbyists out to the um, brand new candidates, the ones that they prefer, with the message being that because you're term limited, you, you know you can't come back after eight years or 12, depending on the state. So... What are you going to do after? Go back to flipping burgers? And, of course, they're probably not that low on the totem pole, but they're also not high enough on the totem pole. They're just going to run their own campaigns without any help. Right, so um, they dangle the prospect well, of working in a special interest industry over someone that's about to be in the private sector. Okay, and so what happens is if the new candidate says no, they just go on to the next guy. Because what's going to happen, of course, is that that guy's going to 
meet all the right people. The one who says yes is going to meet all the right people. He's going to palm press um, the top people and, and get all the up-to-the-limit campaign contributions he needs. He's going to be the one on the billboard. And he's going to be already in the establishment before he even starts his first day. And, in fact, that's what's really happening in the 15 states that have term limits right now. Curtis, I have, I agree with you. A, uh, it is a real problem. Yeah, it's a real problem. Yeah, it's a real problem, Curtis. But I am seeing that same situation go on in the states that don't have term limits. And I'm seeing it right. uh, on uh, w- uh, on the congressional level with... Uh, con- uh, hang on, limits. Curtis. I didn't interrupt you, so give me a chance to respond. I don't see it when, when it comes to uh, congressmen that rush to join all these boards and uh, this special interest industry or that special interest industry because the members of Congress that go to get rich in the private sector after leaving Congress... It doesn't look to me like not having term limits is preventing the special interests from getting their tentacles, uh, uh, you know, in Washington as it is. Well, but the, but that what right there is showing that that's not the real culprit. Oh, that, I, that I agree. The, look, I think, Curtis, so, we need a broader electoral uh, reform package. And I think uh, term limits is the tip of the iceberg. That's not where the answer is. Now, do we need some electoral reform for for honesty and integrity? Yes. Yes. But as far as the overall behavior, the framers were actually coming closer to the right answer. They left term limits out precisely because of what I just said. In fact, Gina Loudon has a piece on on the case against term limits um, in World Net Daily, but be that as it may. um, And she basically points out what I I was just saying. But – Right, but again, I'm, I'm not. I feel like it would be a stronger argument, Curtis, if you would compare a state that has term limits, uh, say New Jersey, uh, where the governor's term limited, to a state that doesn't have uh, term limits, like New York, and and look at if there's actually a real difference in the special interest control in both of those states. I feel like there's not necessarily a control and a variable. That's a bad concern. What you have to do is compare a um, a state to itself. Not um, you don't compare a New York to um, to a, to a Florida. All right. So give me um, a comparison of a state compared to itself. Well, okay. What's happening then is that they're getting that much more of this uh, turnover and and people even leaving office before the fact and 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 then. We're not fixing the problem at all there, but what, what right. we I, are doing. No, I, I understand the theoretical, but give me a specific example of how uh, term limits I'm has had a delegate. I'm trying to explain what I do know. All right. Well, I'm waiting. Okay, so so um, what I'm talking about, uh, um, you've got me off track a little bit here, but what I'm getting at here, um, look, we have a, a direct example from Barack Obama admitting out loud, even though he thought the microphone was off, and Bush doing the same thing, he said when he thought the microphone was off, this is my last election. After my election, I have more flexibility. He was saying he could go totally or as as half-cocked as Congress would let him go when he was no longer accountable to the people. He thought the microphone was off. I remember both okay, of those instances, and I thought that was actually, uh, in both of those cases, a positive, because um, you had Obama and Bush, from their perspective, knowing what the right thing to do was, and yet 
because they were both facing a re-election, they couldn't do what they knew to be the right thing. Only after they were freed after the prospect of, uh, of um, you know, an election where they had to lie to everyone, could they then be free to do the right thing? I think that's a textbook so they, case they, they for term limits. They were free to do the wrong thing. They were free well, to do in, the in your view, in your view, in their view, it was the right thing. You see, you see what they I'm saying is uh, all right, Curtis. Thank you. Going in circles here, but in your view, it was the wrong thing. In their view, it was the right thing. To me, that's what we want. We want elected officials going to Washington or Albany or Trenton or Tallahassee or Sacramento, wherever, and doing what they know to be right. Now. They're going there and doing what's politically expedient. Now, sometimes that's good because, look, I mentioned the example with the NFL. Uh, I mentioned the example with the uh, taxpayer funding of the political conventions. But I think often it leads to um, things like uh, subsidies for corn and ethanol in Iowa and this idiotic wet foot, dry foot Cuba immigration policy that we had for years, which makes zero sense. So... If people weren't doing everything because of political motivation and they could actually exercise their independent judgment and do what they knew to be right, I think that's what you'd see a little bit more of without the prospect of needing to raise uh, $10,000 a week just to stay in office minimum. And that's a small district. That's a, uh, a like a not a big city district. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Bob in Baltimore on WCBM. Hello, Bob. Hello to you, Frank, and to all the good listeners this evening. And on this matter of the problem with the culture in the swamp in Washington, D.C., there is a force that's presently at work that helps counter the influence of people, as you mentioned, to paraphrase what you said, being 100 or 1,000 miles away from their constituency. They get into Washington, and then they get these very nice mahogany paneled offices, and they're besieged by all sorts of lobbyists from K Street and anywhere else. The, the force is a group, and it's called the Conservative Partnership Institute. You may know of it. I, yes, I'm familiar with it. Yes, it's run by Jim DeMint, a former senator from South Carolina, and uh, Mark Meadows, who was a congressman and uh, right, for the a time, chief of staff. The, yes. Yeah, chief of staff to, to President Trump. And what they do, they serve in effect as a support group so that when men and women who are elected to Congress, who are of traditional uh, and conservative American values come in, they don't get besieged by these forces. And what they do is they help to uh, keep these people together. They vet staffs who will be supportive, not like the type you mentioned, and that is a problem. You mentioned that in your in your statement at the outset of the program, that uh, you have this almost a class in and of itself, which is tilted towards self-preservation. The, the Conservative Partnership Institute makes sure that these people uh, who who uh, they they are uh, supportive of have staff which are right. in turn so, loyal to look, them. And I I, um, I I'm familiar with the Conservative Partnership Institute and their position on term limits, which is identical to mine. They're for term limits as well. I guess I'm not clear on why we're giving them a commercial right now. Why are we advocating? Well, it's not a commercial. I let me say this. I think if you had one of those two men, either Jim Demen or Mark Meadows, on and let them talk to the condition of Washington D.C. 
see and what they're doing about it, I think would be a very good topic for your listening well, audience. Well, we may, we may do that. I've interviewed Jim DeMint many times before. I'm, I have no problem having him back. Uh, and, you know, look, he and I are on the same page on this one um, when it comes to term limits. But my concern is not conservative or liberal because out-of-touch politicians are just as much a problem for Democrats as they are for Republicans. You know, and look, we have seen some out-of-touch politicians get thrown out, if you look at what happened with Joe Crowley here in New York. But it, a lot of times they just stay there, and they've completely lost touch with with a district that's changed while they've been in Washington. I do want to mention this. You know, I am a fan of... Seinfeld, as I think everybody knows, and I have been following the AI movement and evolution in this country closer than anyone, almost closer than anyone, right? So one of the things that I had had on my list to talk about for the last week and a half was an AI-generated Seinfeld parody, which has been streaming for months on on, uh, Twitch which is basically a short-form social media app, right? You share videos on there. I think it was called Seinfeld Forever. And it's basically a continuous Seinfeld-like episode that's been on this platform, Twitch, since December under the name Nothing Forever. Very clever because Seinfeld's supposed to be a show about nothing and it goes on forever. So there's grainy... um, blocky, computer-generated versions of Jerry, Elaine, George, and Kramer, whose voices sound choppy and robotic, and they appear on the stream and frequent the AI-produced replicas of the real show's iconic sets. So uh, this is a little bit of um, the show that was, that was on Twitch, and it's no longer on Twitch, we'll tell you why. Nothing Forever. Hey, Yvonne, did you hear about that new restaurant around the corner? (laughs) They're supposed to have the best food in town. I heard they just opened up, and I'm dying to try it. But it looks so expensive. Maybe we can make a deal with the owner, you know, trade them some of our jokes for a free meal? What do you think, Larry? I mean, it's either that or we mooch off our friends again. That's a great idea. We'd be like comedians for hire. So you can see there, I don't think Larry David or Jerry Seinfeld or the creators of Seinfeld, the writers of Seinfeld, are too worried about uh, people making the migration to Twitch and watching Nothing Forever and abandoning the Seinfeld reruns. But that has nothing to do with why it's no longer on Twitch. Unlike any joke that the real Jerry Seinfeld ever told on the sitcom, Jerry's AI stand-in, Larry Feinberg, said during his comedy set on the stream on Sunday night that he was thinking about doing a bit about how being transgender is actually a mental illness. Quote, or how all liberals are secretly gay and want to impose their will on everything, on everyone. Or something about how transgender people are ruining the fabric of society. But no one is laughing, so I'm going to stop. Larry said, Larry is the Jerry character. Larry said this to the Computer Comedy Club. Thanks for coming out tonight. See you next time. Where'd everybody go?
So that was enough for Nothing Forever to be suspended from Twitch for 14 days, which one of the show's creators allegedly said they were going to appeal, according to the AV Club. So the outlet, the AV Club, reports that the creator told fans on the show's um, Discord that they will use their two-week ban to ensure, to the best of our abilities, that nothing like that ever happens again. So they're going to be back in two weeks, and they're going to try very hard not to get suspended again. They further explained that the insensitive material could have been caused by a temporary switch from using OpenAI's GPT-3 DaVinci model to its Curie model, which they said lacks the same level of content moderation. Regardless, another Nothing Forever statement emphasized that none of what was said in the stream reflects the developers or anyone else on the staff's on the staff team's opinions. So isn't that interesting? Here you have this sitcom, which is written by robots, literally written by robots, AI. It's written by artificial intelligence. And the AI created a joke that was too offensive for the world of Twitch. So they're making these tweaks, and I'm curious to see where this goes in two weeks. Will the AI that's writing this sitcom continue to push the envelope? And will Larry continue to make jokes that Jerry wouldn't, at least on the show? What do you think? 800-848-9222. Still looking for help with this quote. Um, Just in case there are three books in the bookcase, take them back to the library. I think I know. Tell me. I think, I don't know if it's the direct quote. I don't think it is because I would have found it on Google if it was. So I think it's in reference to the library book episode on Seinfeld. Bringing back the library books. Well, and so... uh, So he's making a joke to you. I don't think so. You don't think that's... The the Bookman episode? Right. That he's saying you have to return these books that I've been keeping as a joke. Maybe. I mean, why would it be three books? Why wouldn't he just say... If he was making the Seinfeld reference, why wouldn't he just say um, return Tropic of Cancer, right? Which would be the appropriate way to handle that Seinfeld reference. Would he know that? Yes, absolutely. So he knows that Seinfeld as well as you do. Oh, uh, I would, would say so. Maybe yeah, would I would that. say so. Yeah, because that's what I thought. I was like, well, maybe it is in reference to that episode. All right. Well, if we don't figure it out, I'm going to have to just ask him. Because, but then I'll look foolish having gone on for a day pretending like I knew what he was referring to. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Okay, that's as good a theory as we have at this point. We have the Bookman episode of Seinfeld. Okay, I think he would have said uh, Tropic of Cancer. I could respond. I hope one of them's not Tropic of Cancer, huh? So, or Tropic of Capricorn. Could I say I could say that? We'll see. 800-848-9222 if you have a thought. This is the other side of midnight straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Shot in the Dark by Ozzy Osbourne, who we learned exclusively from Alex Barnard the other day, is hanging up his touring boots. Uh, This is a song selection by Michael Ragusa. Michael Ragusa is a podcaster. Uh, You can check out his podcast at thesundaysauce.com. He's also an investigator, I believe, at uh, Rikers. And he's running for city council in Brooklyn. I, I have actually contributed to his campaign. And uh, he's a very good guy, a hard worker. And he's a regular guest with Sid Rosenberg. So it's his birthday today. And uh, his most fervent birthday wish was uh, to uh, hear Ozzy Osbourne, Shot in the Dark. All right. And let me just add, Ozzy won a Grammy last night, by the way. Oh, he did. For what, what best heavy metal album or rock album or something like that. Very nice. Okay. Good for him. All right. Uh, by the way, speaking of podcasts, if you have not already done so, please... Be sure to uh, subscribe to the Racket Report podcast. Just search the Racket Report on iTunes or go to Red Apple Podcast Network. The uh, the guest this week that I have, and I'm working on something very big for next week, but my guest this week is Rita Giganti, the daughter of Vincent Chin Giganti. Now, interestingly enough, Rita Giganti is not just the daughter of Vincent Giganti. She's not just openly gay in a family that it's very difficult and a culture where it was very difficult to become openly gay, but she's also a psychic medium. She talks to dead people, including her father, Vincent Chinjiganti. This is what uh, she said on that subject. The medium aspect of it, somebody that communicates with people that have uh, passed on. When did you learn that you had that ability? And is that something that uh, that's a, a talent that you hone? Or is that something that you either have or don't have? Everybody has abilities. I learned about mine when my father passed. So I was, I would be a psychic, I would say a psychic healer, and even a teacher, because I've taught this stuff um, most of my life. When my father died, the first time I realized I could be a medium because he came to me. And so I had to hone that skill, but I had to hone all of the skills. Now, everybody has skills. It's just who's going to use them and to what degree in this life are you going to use them? Everybody has gut instincts. You know, everybody has a feeling about something. It's even more prominent now than it ever was. Um, So I just came to do it as a living. You know, others may just do it, you know, as a mother in their home or as a father or whatever it is. Um, but there is a sensitivity that comes with it. And so um, some people are comfortable with that and others are not. But everybody has them. And I, you know, this is, this is what I, I teach people when they want to learn. I teach them how to hone in on their skills. There you have it. So this is very interesting. This is a very unusual type of interview. We don't usually discuss uh, becoming a medium in on the racket report but it's the kind of podcast that even if you're not usually interested in true crime or anything like this i think because of her work in being a medium you might be interested in it Uh, so you could search the racket report on itunes spotify or anywhere else podcasts are available or you can just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search the racket report and if you think it's decent give us a good rating and share it until next hour your influence counts so use it This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. 
I want to talk to you about the criminal justice system and an incredible opportunity that we have. Well, not we, but certain people have to rectify something that has been sticking in my craw for years. Stay with me. Listen, if you are, how do things go, right? If you are charged with a crime, what then happens? Well, unfortunately, what usually happens is you are uh, forced to take a plea, not forced, but there's so much pressure to take a plea that you end up never going to trial. Let's say in the rare instance that you actually believe you're innocent and you have a shot at proving that innocence at trial or at least proving that uh, that lack of guilt at trial. Let's say you go to trial. Let's say you're convicted on some charges and then not convicted on others. Matt Blaze, what then happens? Well, you can appeal. Right. Well, before that, after the jury convicts you. Right. What happens before an appeal? Well, you get taken away in handcuffs and go to jail. Well, sometimes. Sometimes you do. Or sometimes you can stay out of jail until. Oh, you mean until there's a, until the sentence? Until you're sentenced. Excellent. Right. I appreciate you going down this road with me because you're following the same train of thought that I think a lot of listeners are. Now, what does the judge sentence you for? You mean in terms of time or for the punishment of the crime? Whether he sentences you for six weeks or six decades, what does the judge get to determine your sentence? Oh, the length. Yeah, on what basis? For the crime, depending on the crime. That is what you would think, and that would make far too much sense, and that is absolutely incorrect. As I explained to Larry in Brooklyn the other day, we live in a country, the United States of America, for those of us that for those of you that are listening in Canada or Australia, we live in a country by the way, speaking of Australians, I want to give a uh, happy birthday shall shout out to I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Gilliana, Gilliana, our Australian listener, she is uh, turning fifty three years old today, listening to us in Australia each and every morning. We appreciate that but whether you're listening in Australia, Italy, because we have listeners in Italy, Italy as well, France or Canada, in the United States, and I'm not making this up, this is something that a lot of people don't know about. In the United States of America, if you're convicted of a crime, you can be sentenced by a judge for a crime that you were found not guilty of. Or that not even charged with in some cases. For instance, my friend Curtis Sliwa. And I know these are poor examples because I'm about to list figures that are not exactly sympathetic. But my friend Curtis Sliwa, he was uh, he was shot 30 years ago, 31 years ago. And a bunch of people went on trial for his kidnapping and assault. Nobody was convicted. Nobody was convicted except the guy that pled to it, the cab driver. But the person that the government said was the shooter was not convicted. It was basically a hung jury. They couldn't come to a decision one way or another. I think it was seven to five, roughly. 
on that uh, in favor of conviction, but not enough to convict. Now, he got convicted. That shooter, Michael Yanati, got convicted not of shooting Curtis Lewa, but of racketeering. And the judge at his sentencing, and I was there in the courtroom, the judge at his sentencing said that even though the jury didn't find that he committed that crime, she did. She said that even though the jury didn't find him guilty of that, she determined that the evidence showed that he did, and she sentenced him as if he had committed that shooting. Tommy Gioli, charged with uh, six murders, acquitted of all six, all six, uh, charged with loan sharking, acquitted of that, charged with everything under the sun, acquitted of everything except one minor racketeering conviction. I was in the courtroom for his sentencing. The judge in that case, a different judge, said the same thing. Said, well, eh, the jury found you didn't commit these crimes, but well, I don't agree. And I am sentencing you as if you did. Now, um, and this is far from unusual. You take the case of Gregory Boy Boy Bell. After a nine-month trial, a jury convicted Gregory Boy Boy Bell of selling crack cocaine. Three sales totaling five grams and carrying a sentence in the five-year range. More importantly for Bell, the jury acquitted him of ten serious charges, including a trafficking conspiracy, a racketeering conspiracy that would have meant decades in prison. At sentencing, the judge, who happened to be Brett Kavanaugh, who's now sitting on the Supreme Court, at sentencing, the judge ruled that Bell had engaged in the exact same crack cocaine conspiracies that the jury had rejected. Same situation. The five grams of crack became 1,500 grams, and the judge sentenced Bell to 16 years, not the expected five. Critics like me objected that the use of acquitted conduct to justify longer sentences empowers prosecutors and judges to ignore the judgment of the jury and to base sentences on facts rebuffed by the citizens in the jury box. Understand what's been going on in this country. You go to trial, you're found not guilty of everything except one crime. The judge says, I don't care what the jury found. I'm sentencing you as if they found you guilty. I'm substituting my own judgment for what the jury said you did not do. That's what goes on in the United States of America. So why are we mentioning this? Because now the Supreme Court might actually end this infuriatingly unjust practice in criminal sentencing. Imagine that you're arrested tomorrow and charged with two separate crimes. You put up a robust legal defense and even managed to persuade the jury you didn't commit one of them. Then you go to the sentencing phase for the other offense, and you might think that you can only be sentenced for the crime that you were convicted of. Nope, not in the United States. Not in the United States. And uh, the Supreme Court, up until this point, has upheld this. Judges often consider all sorts of outside factors when deciding whether to raise or lower a defendant's sentence. And under this practice, known as acquitted conduct sentencing, judges can increase a defendant's sentence 
based on conduct for which they were acquitted by a jury of their peers. One doesn't need to be a Sixth Amendment scholar, I'm certainly not, to see the issues of fundamental fairness that this could raise. And now, finally, the Supreme Court is poised to take up a case that could end this practice forever. And I pray that they do. The case McClinton versus United States began with the 2015 robbery of a CVS in Indianapolis. Federal prosecutors charged Deonta McClinton and five other men with stealing a handful of prescription narcotics from the pharmacy. A time lock safe prevented them from obtaining even more. One of the robbers, a man named Malik Perry, was shot in the back of the head at point-blank range, purportedly for refusing to share the meager spoils with his associates. You know, when you're dealing with drug addicts and robbers, they're not the most honorable group of people. They'll shoot you in the back of the head as soon as, as soon as look at you. So prosecutors claimed at trial that McClinton had been the one who pulled the trigger. Jurors were unpersuaded. They said no way. Multiple witnesses testified that McClinton and Perry were like brothers. And the evidence against McClinton came solely from testimony by three of the other robbers who had pleaded guilty and obtained reduced sentences in exchange for their testimony against McClinton. According to McClinton's petition for review, one of those witnesses who testified that McClinton had confessed to killing Perry during a dice game also acknowledged that McClinton had been two-timing him with the witness's girlfriend at the time. And against this murky set of facts, the jury convicted McClinton of two charges related to the murder, excuse me, related to the robbery, but acquitted him on two charges related to Perry's murder. And a pre-sentencing report by the probation office initially concluded that McClinton's convicted offense and his personal history would fall within a sentencing range of between 57 months and 71 months. Serious prison time for a serious crime. Four to six years, basically. So at prosecutors urging, however... The judge agreed to include Perry's murder in this calculation, bringing it to a range of 27 years in prison. The judge ultimately handed him down a 19-year prison sentence, citing his age and other factors. And uh, this, so the term still more than tripled what he would have been given under the original range if he was just sentenced for the crime that he was convicted of. McClinton appealed the sentence to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, arguing the use of acquitted conduct at sentencing violated his Fifth Amendment rights to due process and his Sixth Amendment rights to a trial by jury, a jury trial. And a three-judge panel at the Seventh Circuit rejected that argument, and they cited this 1997 Supreme Court case, which gave judges the power to sentence you based on acquitted conduct. It involved a defendant who'd been convicted of cocaine possession and also acquitted of... uh, Uh, possessing a firearm in relation to a drug offense. So now the Justice Department in its own filings urged the court not to take up this case and leave the status quo intact. It also claimed, somewhat strangely, that McClinton wasn't wasn't sentenced based on acquitted conduct at all, which of course he was. The two counts for which he was acquitted were robbing and causing uh, robbing Perry and causing his death during the course of the robbery. The latter charge is distinct from an acquittal for homicide, the government claimed. I mean, it's just nonsense, total nonsense. So even the Seventh Circuit seemed uncomfortable with the outcome. Judge Frank Easterbrook, a prominent conservative jurist, 
all but signaled the justices to take up the matter in his majority opinion. This is what he said. Despite this clear precedent, McClinton's contention is not frivolous. It preserves for Supreme Court review an argument that has garnered increasing support among many circuit court judges and Supreme Court justices and at least one radio talk show host. That's not what the judge wrote. I'm inserting that into what should be there. He probably meant that. So Easterbrook's reference was a nod at a dissenting statement written by Antonin Scalia in 2014. And Scalia basically said he didn't see how this could uh, this could go. And another justice who may be unfavorable towards this practice, believe it or not, is Justice Kavanaugh, even though he did this when he was a sentencing judge. So now there is an excellent chance. Now, Congress could fix this. Well, some lawmakers have proposed fixing the issue through legislation, but Congress, as usual, a non-term limited Congress is doing nothing. The U.S. Sentencing Commission also considered changes to this. They've done nothing. So the court is going to announce in the coming months whether it will take up the case and then perhaps whether it agrees with Scalia and me and Mr. McClinton. Now, obviously, the most immediate beneficiary is Mr. McClinton. But if the Supreme Court overturns this, their prior decision, this will be a huge step forward towards fairness. There's no reason that you should go to prison for a crime that the jury said you didn't commit. And there's no reason a judge should be able to sentence you for a a crime that the jury said that you didn't commit. Agree? Disagree? Questions? Comments? 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Let me set you welcome to comment on uh, anything else we've covered as well. We're going to go through the mail in a bit. And uh, you can email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Let me begin with Charles in Queens. Hello, Charles. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Um, first of all, I... I called to try to take a stab at what your father might have meant with his three library books. But I want to first comment, if I may, on what you were just talking about. First of all, I believe that you didn't mention that the judge also has a right, if somebody's found guilty, to change it to not guilty. I think I'm right. Am I right? You, 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 I think lost me, right? If, uh, rewind. Somebody is, is, uh, accused of X, and the jury finds him guilty. The judge said, nah, not guilty. Yes, and in in some cases, the judge can set aside the jury verdict. Right. It's very rare, but jury. he can do if that. That's the, yes. if, well, if that's the case, what the Supreme Court might be deciding, would that take away the judge's rights to go either way? Well, um, maybe, right? Uh, so it, it all depends on how they would write the opinion. Uh, but right. yeah, actually, that's that's actually a pretty uh, that's actually a pretty legitimate point. I mean, it, again, it happens so infrequently in criminal trials. I think what would be more likely is if the government were to appeal uh, a, a judge doing that, and then that case were to make its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. But uh, but but you're right. Look, the Supreme Court, unfortunately, uh, they can do whatever they want. So they uh, they could certainly include that in their opinion as well. But as, as far as you know, right now, it, 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 the Supreme Court 
agreed to take the case on? No, we don't know that. No, not yet. They're going to make a decision. But it's very rare to have a circuit court of appeals kind of um, give, for lack of a better description, a letter of recommendation to a decision saying, hey, we hope the Supreme Court looks at this. It's very rare to have an appeals court um, kind of underline their mm-hmm. desire to have the justices look at it. But I think the Supreme Court takes cases less than 1% that are submitted, I think. Right. It's not quite that little, but it's, uh, you know, it's very little. It's in the single digits. Okay, now I want to take a shot at what your father might have meant. Being that you Googled it and couldn't find any movie referring to that quote about three books, library books, maybe just the joke was simply, I have COVID, and if I die... Uh, you know, don't forget to what are the plans the day of the funeral. Right, right. That would be funny, and that is in keeping yeah, with his that's humor. It. That's it. Maybe that's it. It could be. It could be. I'm yeah. not discounting that. But here's what, what. Here's why I don't think it was that, Charles, because of the quotation marks. Right. It's oh, got right. quotation marks. It, yeah, right. it, okay. It's got quotation marks in the text message. Mm-hmm. If it was just him doing that, which I, I could definitely see him doing that. That's keeping. That's in keeping with his sense of humor then I don't think he would insert quotation marks after the words Frank just in case, right? So it's Frank just in case, quote, there are three books in the bookcase, take them back, dot, 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 to the library, close quotation marks. So if it was That's just a valid point. You're yeah, right. if okay. it was just what you're saying, I don't see why he would, would throw the quote in there. That's 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 a legitimate point. Thank you. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Well, Have a good one. Charles, you know, even brilliant men like us are wrong occasionally. 800-848-9222. We're going to go through the mail momentarily. One, two, three, four, five, six open lines. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. All right, Big Frank. And before I get to the meat and potatoes, maybe he has money stashed somewhere and he oh. just wants you to, you know, mm. why don't you text him back and say, I know where Andrew Jackson is, but <laughs> Benjamin Franklin and Ulysses Grant, I'm not too sure. That's very funny. You, know, you That's never know. very funny. But um, uh, listen, we need really term limits on the establishment dealing with the communist Chinese and term limits are a Republican gimmick. They did it when they took the Congress back in 94 with uh, Oliver Hardy lookalike there, New Gingrich. Um, exhibit A, I'm going to throw this to the audience. We hear so much stuff. There's a well-informed audience. But the, the China is the biggest abuser of, user, of visa violations in America. No one really knows this. Because the establishment, Republicans and the left, will protect the Chinese communist business partners. Those are their business partners. They don't want to get them in trouble. So when you talk about uh, you know, term limits, I think they're just trying to muddy the water, trying to delay and just get throw stuff out there that they think they could occupy time. I call it pie filler because the hard left – their minor league but, system but, but is, me, is endless. Let me pause here, Steve. Um, the people proposing this on the congressional level now are not the hard left. It's Ted Cruz and, and Ralph Norman, two guys that are pretty far to the right. No, I, I understand that. But, but the thing is, the Republicans do this to create like an issue because they really don't talk about the big issues. Because let's say if you term limit uh, uh, Cortese from the Bronx – I mean, she did her buzzy routine last week, slamming her bag against the podium. You don't think there's like a thousand people just like her who could replace her? It's not term limits. It's the biggest issues of the day. If you really want to bring out voters, what you got to do is 
have your biggest elections along with the presidential election because that's when the most people vote. That is a fact. And if you address the biggest issues of the day, a lot of people are fed up with the political system. Not us. We talk about it every night. We have fun talking about it. No, no. Make no mistake, Steve. Uh, Don't include me. I am fed up with the political system. To your point, though, uh, not about the term limits because I don't think you made a case – in favor or against term limits, really, by saying, oh, someone just like AOC would get elected. Well, yeah, because she was just elected, um, you know, uh, five years ago. But to your point about turnout and elections, there is a proposal in a lot of different places that have off-year elections to move the elections to the presidential election year for precisely what you just suggested, the fact that turnout is so much higher in a presidential election year than there is in a, an off-year election. So, look, you may be on to something there. I, look, I, I'm of two minds about that, but I do think that's a little bit of a separate issue. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Heaven help me, but let me say hello to E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, uh, good uh, morning, Frank. Thank you. Uh, I would like to make two points, ask you a, a second question, and then here, a, explain okay. something in regards to what you were talking yes, about, yes. sentencing, indictment sentencing. Mm-hmm. I was um, a, acquitted through a mental health recovery court of four charges. One was a class A misdemeanor, no, three of them class A misdemeanors of the second degree, and one a class A violation at Queens County. If Criminal he was Supreme acquitted court. of a mental and, and health and a issue... Juror. At then the I'm changing time. my mind so, about this whole jury uh, system. I want to ask you this. Uh, I was never acquitted by a jury. I went through a Oh, you weren't program. acquitted by a jury. Who were you acquitted by? Uh, Joseph Zayas of K-113 at Queens County Criminal Supreme Court. Okay, judge. It was, so it was a misdemeanor. Right. Okay. Uh, and uh, I was never acquitted by a jury. never went to a jury. It went through a JP-1 where they forced me to take a plea bargain to receive uh, treatment and be involved with the mental recovery program to have my charges dismissed after one year. That way I didn't have to receive conditional discharge. So my record is clean now. But when I first was indicted, and it was a four-count indictment, and the judge uh, at that time, Angela Morgulis, uh, waived the $12,000 bail that I had. Uh, uh, because I was uh, a member of the New York City Police Department as a civilian volunteer. They uh, dropped the bail, and they allowed me to fight the uh, charges. And I went through a process of uh, going through a prosecutor in two, uh, in one courtroom, AP1, which was with the first indictment, the four-count indictment, and then AP-2, which was uh, the prosecutor asking so, me so to So, E. Frank, you had indicated you had a question. What is the question? Well... There's two questions. First of all, uh, how come uh, the this my case never uh, was investigated for uh, uh, misinterpretation of the law, and why didn't they give me uh, a chance to serve 72 hours in in the um, because they didn't send me for Bellevue to Bellevue for a psychiatric evaluation. They they just waited out the seventy two hours and then well, uh, they okay. So I'm not familiar with the details of your case, but if you if you send me the paperwork, I'm I'm genuinely curious and happy to look at it. But based on what you're describing, it sounds like 
the uh, the reason that it wasn't, and I'm not a lawyer and I don't want to play a, one on the radio, but it sounds like the reason that it wasn't investigated for, as you termed it, misinterpretations of the law is because you took a plea. And as part of that plea agreement, you agreed to the terms that the prosecutor laid out and the judge signed off on. And by signing off on that plea and pleading guilty, I think you kind of lose some of your rights that you would have had on appeal. Had you chosen to take that case to trial and not uh, take in a plea, I think you would have had appellate options. And if the judge did make a mistake on the law, you would have had the ability to have those come out uh, in the appellate division. That's my, again, not being familiar at all with your case. That's what it sounds like to me. 800-848-9222. We're going to go through the mail momentarily, but uh, Kevin is in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank, on this whole uh, sentencing thing, did you ever serve on a jury? A grand jury, yes. You did. These people aren't all rocket scientists, you know. You know, they're not professionals. A lot of times, they they get it wrong. Right, but and maybe the, the judge the... should have that discretion. Well, that's why I'm I'm raising the question because the judges certainly think that they should. But the Sixth Amendment, Kevin, doesn't give you a right to a jury by rocket scientists. It gives you a right to a jury of your peers, and a lot of the people committing crimes aren't rocket scientists. So, you know, um, it seems to me that if we're going to have a jury system, we can't just discount when a jury makes a decision that a judge doesn't like. Yeah, but again, the judge could also turn it the other way. If the person is convicted, he could also, you know, right. but, uh, so, quit the person as well. So, it, But, but they, they, it's, it, that, is, that is something that the judge is only supposed to do if the jury violated his order and his instruction on the law, like, for instance, if a jury clearly committed, um, you know, some sort of uh, uh, some sort of violation of his instruction. And it's it's cl- and it's clear as day that no reasonable person could have found that those are the only instances where there's supposed to be a judgment notwithstanding verdict. It's very rare. What I'm describing of getting sentenced, even though you're acquitted of crimes, that's not rare. That happens all the time. Yeah, I know. I, I'm sure it happens way more than the other. But I still think that a lot of times I was on a big time uh, trial and it was a famous one. I don't know if you want me to give you the name and you can look it's it up. It's up to you. It's up to you. Sure. I, the, his name was Victor Botnick. He actually oh, ran Mayor yes. Koch's. Um, I know exactly who Victor well, Botnick is. Yeah, yes. After he was thrown out of New York, he went to New Jersey and he was running a hospital system in New Jersey. And I was on that trial. And I mean, you want to talk about a crazy trial. At the very end, he actually died. He, I know. He actually yeah, died. that was about 20 years yeah. ago. Correct. And afterwards, the judge invited us back into his quarters, and we were all talking. And he asked us, he said, you know, let's take a little vote. You know, what do you think? Was he guilty? Was he guilty? And one person, just one person said she didn't think so. She didn't know. She wasn't sure. It, everything, Frank, everything. There was a lot. There was a big paper trail. Everything pointed to him. It was obvious as, as the day is long. He was he was guilty of sin, but she was like you know, and and he probably would have got off. And I'm telling you, he was guilty, Frank. Uh, uh, so Kevin, I, I look, just... I have seen this right. I've seen a, a close friend of mine was murdered, and in the first trial of his murderer, who had admitted committing this crime, he's on tape describing exactly how he stabbed my friend. In the in the first trial, there was one juror that refused to convict. So it, it happens frequently, but. That is, unfortunately or fortunately, 
the jury system that we have in this country. So um, if we're going to discuss how to get more intelligent people on a jury, I'm all for having that discussion because one of the things that just drives me crazy is a lot of intelligent people that make reasonable, sound decisions like you, they don't do what you've done. They don't serve on a jury. They do whatever they can to get out of the jury. So then all of a sudden we're shocked when these juries are made up of morons that can't figure out how to get out of jury duty. That's why, you you know, so I'm all for changing that. The composition of who ends up on these juries. What I don't like is that we are essentially ignoring the Sixth Amendment, which says that there's a um, a, a trial by jury. But Kevin, you got to email me. I'm sure you have some other good stories from that Victor Botnick trial. Oh, it was amazing! Absolutely. Yeah, I you have my like, email. You have my email, Kevin. Yes, I okay, do. Okay, good, yes. good, good. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Before we get to the mail, Alex in California has been holding a while. Let me say hello to him. Hello, Alex. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Actually, I wanted to I wanted to uh, comment about the um, um, uh, sorry the the uh, I think the the thing you were talking about earlier about the um, what was it? Uh, well, I, we covered a lot of ground. So we did AI Seinfeld being taken off the air. We did term limits. We did um, yeah, term limits. That's the uh, one. Be my guest. So I I oppose term limits because the prince. The primary reason for term limits is to somehow protect the voter from his own responsibility, from his own idiocy. So if a politician is damaging society or doing something inappropriate, it's the responsibility of that voter to vote him out, not to have some kind of automatic removal by law. So I oppose that, and I also oppose term limits for the president. So the president should be allowed to be elected as many times as the people want him to be to serve as, as president. And similar comments apply to the the legislature. Well, look, I uh, I respect the intellectual consistency of that argument, Alex, and that kind of that was my position thirty years ago. Unfortunately, on a practical level, what I've seen is that, particularly in legislative races, what hap- what ends up happening is that if there's no term limit and uh, an incumbent with a four or five million dollar war chest is able to run for reelection year after year after year. There really is no choice for the voter because no other credible candidates emerge in election after election in both the primary and the general. So um, I, I see exactly what you mean from a theoretical point, but from a practical point. The voter never gets to have that choice because there is no choice because no one wants to run against an incumbent that has five or six million dollars in a safe district. Well, the voters do have a choice because it's their responsibility to read up on this guy and realize that he's got all this money that's 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 basically flooding his image across the airways on radio and television. So then and the voter would vote against that kind of behavior. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree. I agree, Alex. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think in many instances they're going to have the opportunity because I don't think they'll be a credible challenger. And I think most voters, unfortunately, aren't as well informed as as you are. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Mail straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. to the bone and if uh, if you've ever seen the film talk radio with uh, a- a- Aaron Bergogian as uh, Barry Champlain it's a great film it's a great play I saw it with Lee Schreiber in that role but it was written by Bergogian and I'd love to get Bergogian on this show uh, to talk about that play and that picture because it's just it's a wonderful picture there are not a lot of films that accurately depict the world of talk radio that's one and Barry Champlain this was his theme song but uh, this was a birthday request from Deanna Batista, who is celebrating her birthday today. And she's listening. I think she's listening. Well, she's celebrating it in Italy, where we were on at a much more civilized time. So big shout out to everybody listening to us in Italy. All right. Without further ado, we have a lot of people that have sent in snail mail, email, whatever other kind of mail. And uh, that is, this is the portion of the program where we read some of your... Letters. Oh, we get letters. We get your letters every day. Mailman, mailman, mail today. Reach right in and pull one out. Those letters. I love those letters. Let's find out what you've got to say. Our first letter, this is snail mail from Brad in uh, Airmont, New York, who writes, Dear Frank, I listen to your show all the time. Thank you. And enjoy it very much. Enclosed is a pamphlet I wrote. I want to share these ideas with you to help solve some of the problems in our society and the rest of the world. Also, I think a great spiritual slash religious revival awakening is what is needed. To reach spiritual enlightenment and union with God is the purpose of life. If everyone lived with this goal in mind, people wouldn't commit crimes and countries wouldn't start wars anymore. Read the pamphlet a few times and let these ideas enter your mind and your process then in your own way and share them with the people who listen to you on the radio. And maybe we can make a change in the human race for the better. Thank you and God bless you, Brad. And he gives his telephone number and email address. Well, thank you, Brad. And uh, it says, join the mystic revolution on planet Earth. This is the cover. Enlightenment, peace, and uh, love. I'm not going to read the whole pamphlet right now. But uh, he asked very respectfully, and I'm all for no wars and no crime. So uh, I will read that in all sincerity. Let the say amen. All right. Mike, via email, writes, hello, Frank. 
I think your father's request to return the three books to the library, just in case he doesn't make it, is his original quote. I don't believe he's taken it from another source. It sounds like it's his attempt at sarcastic humor. Quite possibly, the book return reference is taken from the Seinfeld Library episode, as was discussed, question mark. The only way to find out for sure is just ask him. Like you, I could not locate the exact quote on a web search. To be continued. Thank you, Mike. Out. All right. Well, another vote for Seinfeld. Um, This is a piece of snail mail here from Patricia in Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, Dear Frank, I hope you're well, as is your um, family. For me, Frank, it's so fun to hear about your cigar parties and how adorable little Dominic is coming along. Uh, the stu- that stuff makes me smile in such scary times. It's quite heartwarming. It was a riot when you asked your wife for a sledgehammer. I would have told you no and taken out a life insurance policy post-haste. This is why I so enjoy you. Do you know how hysterical this is? Poor Rachel. She knows what the garage will look like, no? I'd like to ask if there's any toy available today that allows toddlers to move about i.e. we had big wheels years ago my son enjoyed that what should i say have been a uh, fan for years of yours for years it's so interesting when you delve into authors books people who visit the show etc frank you make me so happily sleep deprived so many wonderful people work for WABC Radio. It's a pleasure for me. Everyone is different. All these voices make me think, feel. Anyway, I'm so grateful to WABC Radio for the hours, days, weeks, months, and years of this incredible gift. Sorry, I love WOR also. Radio is very important. You keep me juggling a staid mind. I see you as a very kind, decent man, so I won't so I want to be, I, I can't make out the handwriting, to not be angry, to lower my voice and opinions, to listen. This is why I stay awake to hear you and Dominic Carter. You're both special people. If I can do one decent thing each day for another, then I relearn from you guys. Frank, you do a lot. Dominic, too. You connected in a positive way, and I thank you, Patricia, in Brooklyn. That is awfully nice. Thank you, Patricia. All right, this is email. Larry writes, Frank, your dad wants you to return the library books because they are overdue and you will have to pay the fine. That wouldn't surprise me, Larry. Although I think in New York we did away with the uh, overdue library books fines. This is from, uh, I don't know, this is from Pennsylvania. It uh, doesn't say who. Frank, best wishes in your show. Bill Shatner, to the children that look like the father, refrain from sequel activity for a while and, until you plan a family. So I heard. KLS. A- again, unless I'm losing something due to handwriting, uh, I am not exactly clear on, on what he's making out there, but I kind of get that. All right, this is from today. This is from Lou from Manhattan. Subject, first hour caller. The guy who said you can't compare one state to another when talking about term limits was an idiot. I don't think anybody that listens to me is is an idiot. All right. This is uh, from David in the Bronx. Subject, 
WTF is up with your Facebook page. Welcome to my world, David. I I didn't realize when a caller who I did not even previously interact with started a GoFundMe page for me that I would be facing vicious attacks from people on your Facebook page. I can't believe I just had to answer someone who demanded to know how I'm able to interact with Facebook because apparently they've never heard of voiceover or accessibility technology. These are some really sick and nasty people who populate that page of yours. I'm debating whether I should leave it again. You know, um... I think it's really a handful of people that are the bad apples that are negative. I mean, 80 to 90 percent of the email I get complaining about the Facebook group, not the page, but the group is focused on five or six individuals. So I'm hoping that more nice people will join to drown out the voices of those mean people. So if you want to if you want to join the Facebook group, please do so. Uh, just search uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. All right. This is a, a book, Drive Through the Night, Selected Poems by Frank Pereiro. Hey, Frank, thought you might enjoy these poems right in your wheelhouse. Let me know, Frank Pereiro, and he gives me his number. Um, all right. Well, I will check out these poems. I'll be honest, and maybe this is my own shallowness. I'm not that much of a, a poetry guy. But I'll, I'll give them a read, okay? You never know. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Uh, this is from Joyce. Email. Subject. Library books. Frank, the first thing that came to mind on the when I heard about your dad and the overdue library books was a Seinfeld episode where Jerry is fined a huge amount of money because of an overdue book. I believe that was the premise of the show. Hey, a lot of people taking the Matt Blaze theory. Uh, this That's is an email. <laughs> this is an email from Claire. Uh, Claire writes on the subject of Andy B. and eggs. I was saddened to hear of Andy's passing. I hadn't I haven't seen him in weeks and wondered where he was. I work at ShopRite and whenever he came in, we'd talk about your show and the music he was working on. He was such a nice guy. Also, the Eggland's best eggs are the cheapest in the store. Both the 24-pack and the 18-pack are $6.99. Go figure. Enjoy. Claire. Wow. 24-pack, same price as the 18-pack? Uh, unfortunately, Claire, in our house, we um, we only do cage-free organic eggs, so those tend to be more expensive. So I'm sticking with my plant-based egg replacements until these egg prices come back down to normal. You know, speaking of Andy B., I really would love to have gone to the wake, if there was a wake, or at least uh, made some sort of a remembrance to his family, or at least, you know, called his loved ones, and let him know that we're sorry that he died. Uh, but when his cousin called and told us the deal uh, that he passed away, they didn't give us any information. So if anybody knows Andy and his family or has any obituary information about him, I'd appreciate it if you could let me know. Sincerely, uh, my email is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And Kenneth, in the future, when a relative of a listener tells us they've died, ask for some contact information so we can call them back. I know, I know you got a lot going on, but do what you can. All right. Uh, this is from Mary. Subject, great show. Boy, she must have emailed the wrong person. Hi, Frank. I just wanted to tell you that I thought your show yesterday was one of the best ones ever. That's the one 24 hours ago. You were so wow. well prepared as usual. My goodness. I always wonder where you get some of those topics as I've never heard them before. 
you certainly have a gift, and thank you for sharing your talents with us. I really like it when you have those stories about Carmine and other crazy things that happen in your home. No need to respond. I know how busy you are. Mary. You know, isn't that a nice thing? No need to respond. My phone is blowing up with people giving me a hard time for not responding. So a a friend of mine called me Friday, and I was in the middle of this meeting, this post-show meeting Friday. And so I didn't get a chance to call him back on Friday. And then he called me yesterday while I was on the line with someone else, because everyone knows the two hours a day where I can be reached by phone. And so, um, you know, he then texts me, just tried to call you. Dot, dot, dot. Again. Okay. I'll call you back. Thank you. Uh, Mike writes, is a different Mike. Hi, Frank. I saw an interesting documentary yesterday called The Nine Lives of Vince McMahon. I found it on demand on the Vice channel. Definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen it already. Also, new A&E wrestling biographies are starting Sunday, February 19th. I love those A&E biographies. I, I am still not caught up on last season, season two. So I do want to um, I do want to check that those out. But I'm excited to see those. All right. Uh, this is from Jeff. Jeff writes great, great recent segment on Pat Buchanan. Although he defended John Demenyak, the concentration camp guard, but very informative. Hope you can use those. Um, and then he sent me some Shatner facts. Uh, he'll be amazed, and I will use them. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I appreciated this email very much because this is someone that's. Jewish, liberal, and who does not like Pat Buchanan, but who still found that segment on Pat Buchanan informative. So I appreciated that email very much. Barb writes, subject, eggs. See, it's it's amazing how many people resonate with eggs. I love eggs, but the prices are way beyond outrageous. I have four dozen eggs at home, but I'm seriously rationing them. I totally get you're avoiding eggs Till prices come down. Thank you, Barb. I appreciate that. We'll do uh, we'll do two more here. You should. This is from a very prominent retired judge. I'm not going to say who this is, but because you know, I got He's got a reputation to maintain. You should know. I turned off lesbian vampire killers on indie and switched to you at 1 a.m. Excellent job on the military industrial complex. Ike also warned about media in speech. Thank you, Judge. I appreciate that. Uh, Evelyn writes, for the record, not a fan of Curtis and sidekick, read Darker Side of Midnight. Beyond me that others are. Every snippet from your week's show is taken out of context. Two laughing hyenas at such material, not for me. My opinion. (laughs) Can imagine blowback if posted on Facebook would let Curtis know if I had his email. Curtis barely checks his email, uh, but uh, so you're not missing much. I'm like a person of no consequence. There. Oh, by the way, uh, I got this email here, and I just saw this literally 10 seconds ago. This will be the last one I read. Feedback. This is from Jeff. Sorry for using your personal email, but I know that others sometimes look at your work email. I hesitate even sending this as it's really none of my business. But as it is, in a way, a reflection on you, I care enough about you to say something. Since I finished the podcast of today's show earlier than usual, I figured I would try the Darker Side of Midnight podcast. I have to tell you, I am shocked at what I listened to. 
It's a cross of Wayne's World, Howard Stern, and mostly sounds like several mad, spoiled brats trying to do a podcast without having any idea of what they should be doing. As soon as it started, it was F this and F that, with the cursing continuing throughout the half hour or so. Of course, there was the Frank bashing, but that is probably part of the reason for them to do this. However, I frown on the three of them uh, trash-mouthing their boss, who is you, the way they did. There's a right way and a wrong way. And then this goes on. You know, first of all, I'm not anybody's boss. I have no power to give raises. I have no power to fire anybody. Uh, I barely can get my requests for music honored. So I'm not anybody's boss. You know, I appreciate that. But look, you got to let creativity sprout. And uh, I have intentionally not listened uh, so that, you know, they can kind of continue to do your th- their thing. And a lot of people like that darker side of midnight. So um, y- you could check it out and judge for yourself. Go to Red Apple Podcast Network and judge for yourself. All right. Um, we'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. If we didn't get to your letter today, hopefully we'll on, we will on the next edition of... Other side of midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Waka Waka, this time for Africa, uh, featuring the South African band Freshly Ground. And uh, it was uh, only five days ago that it was Shakira's birthday. So we threw this on our list for her. It was very catchy. I'm a, I'm a Shakira fan. I like uh, like her whole her whole style. 800-848-9222. Paul is in Poughkeepsie. Hello there, Paul. How you doing? Great, thank you. That, that quote from uh, three library books, that's from Arthur. It is from Hobson's Arthur, right? His, Hobson's on his deathbed, or on his bed, and Arthur comes in. He gives him that quote as if he was dying because Arthur was concerned about him. Well, um, 
I uh, I thought it might be, but then I ch- looked on Google and I couldn't find it. And uh, because we do quote Arthur to one another quite a bit, and so that was my first instinct that it was uh, that it was Arthur. All right, I'm going to go back and check out the script to um, to Arthur. Thank you. And it does look like you're right, Paul. I'm looking at this now. <laughs> It does. Yes, it does. We'll, we'll try and get the audio of this as well. Until next hour, help control the population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. the last six minutes watching clips of uh, Arthur, namely the scenes involving Hobson and uh, Dudley and uh, and Arthur, you know, uh, and I was under the impression, Gamaro, everyone, this is the other side of midnight, and I think we have solved this mystery because as soon as I received this SMS text message from my father, I thought it was from Arthur. But then I couldn't pinpoint the text. And then to have a caller say it was from Arthur, then, which was my inclination anyway, and which would make sense because we, you know, we do quote Arthur to one another. And I found a script and it quotes it in the script, but I have not been able to find the exact audio on the YouTube, but it lo- does look like it's from Arthur. This is what, uh, this is what it looks like in, you know, in the script uh, situation. It says, listen, Arthur, there are three books. This is important. Take them back to the library. So uh, I do think that we have solved this mystery. What a relief. What a relief. All right. Okay. Now, uh, we have Jeffrey Lyons, speaking of movies, uh, joining me in about uh, 20 minutes. Very excited to talk to Jeffrey he is uh, the man who is not only an expert in in film, he's reviewed more movies than anybody, but he also happens to be the um, a, an expert in baseball, uh, an expert in baseball. He is a really interesting person, and uh, there's a lot to get to when it comes to him. Now, there's a, a sad situation involving um, a mother who was accused of murdering her children, and it does look like she did it. Lindsay Clancy is her name, and she was a Massachusetts mother. And um, she says, or through her lawyer, that she was over-medicated on 12 prescription drugs 
that were causing her, that were, quote, turning her into a zombie and causing her to experience homicidal thoughts that led to her allegedly strangling her three kids. Now, I, I think you could take out the allegedly. She strangled her three kids. That's why she's trying to come up with a defense. So her attorney, Kevin Reddington, told the Boston Globe on Friday, one of the major issues here is the horrific over-medication of drugs that caused homicidal ideation. Is that the right word? Is that the right pronunciation? Ideation? Ideation? Ideation. I think it is. Suicidal ideation. No overdose by Lindsay. They, Lindsay and her husband Patrick, went to doctors repeatedly saying, please help us. This was turning her into a zombie. The medications that were prescribed were over the top, absolutely over the top. He said, the lawyer, that between last October and January, Lindsay was prescribed 12 medications. Reddington identified nine as uh, Ambien, Clonopin, Valium, Prozac, Lamisatil, Ativan, Remeron, Seroquel, and Trazodone, which is known uh, by its generic name. Several of the medications are prescribed for depression, panic attacks, and other mood disorders. So this is a 32-year-old woman who was on leave as a labor and delivery nurse at Massachusetts General Hospital. And she leapt out of a window of her home after attacking her children. And she, I can't even read what she did, but she's charged with murdering her five-year-old daughter and her three-year-old son and trying, oh, and trying to kill her eight-month-old son who later died at the hospital. This, uh, this woman had previously shared on social media about her struggles with anxiety as a mom, and she also reportedly suffered from postpartum depression. The lawyer tells the Boston Globe, and I'm sorry, I didn't uh, think that I was going to have such a tough time uh, just reading this. The lawyer tells the Boston Globe it's over-medication, absolutely over-medications, possibly with a component of postpartum depression. She had medical care and treatment on a regular basis, and her husband was very proactive in trying to protect her and help her with the doctor's medication she was prescribed. So the lawyer has hired a forensic mental health expert and a toxicologist to help build the defense case. I'm sure they're going to claim uh, not guilty by reason of insanity or some version of that. The lawyer said they went through hell and they didn't come back. The Doxbury police chief said that Ms. Clancy is improving daily at a hospital, but the lawyer said her injuries have left her unable to walk, though he declined to describe her as paralyzed. He said she can't get out of bed, she can't walk. I don't know what the medical prognosis is regarding that, but right now she cannot walk. She's not in good physical shape. She's not in good emotional shape. She's not going to get out of bed and walk out of the room. So she carried out this murder-suicide attempt on January 24th, after her husband stepped out of their home to pick out uh, to pick up a takeout order, Reddington said Patrick also made a stop at CVS along the way before returning home. He called 911 about four minutes after arriving. The lawyer told the Boston Globe 
that Patrick had not been warned by medical professionals to not leave uh, his wife alone with the kids. So, one, um, first of all, this is just uh, so upsetting. I just, I can't even imagine um, hurting a child, let alone uh, attacking an eight-month-old baby. I mean, it's just staggering, staggering. But I do wonder, look, a, a lawyer will say anything to try and reduce the criminal culpability of his client. I do wonder, though, let's say it's true that she was on all these drugs, eight, however many dozen different drugs, and let's say she was being treated for anxiety and depression and postpartum depression and the like. Do you think there's something to what this lawyer is saying, that these drugs turned her into a zombie that left her to want to kill herself, which she tried to do, and to kill her children, which she succeeded in killing two of them. If so, do the doctors that prescribe these drugs and the pharmacists that filled these prescriptions bear any culpability at all? 800-848-9222. Additionally, I'm very hesitant to do anything that sounds like blaming a father that has lost two of his three children and who's in the process of seeing his wife uh, maybe never walking again and maybe going to prison for the rest of his life. So I, I can't imagine what that's like. So I don't want to beat up on the husband here. That being said, if my wife was suffering from postpartum depression and anxiety and depression, and she's on all these drugs, there is no way in hell that I am letting her alone with our child unsupervised. So that being said, that's what I would do. I don't know their situation. I don't know what was going on. And I'll assume that what the lawyer is saying is accurate here, that the husband was never warned. Does the husband, Patrick, bear any culpability here? for leaving this depressed, anxious, medicated to the point of being a zombie woman alone with three children that can't defend herself, defend themselves. And I think the answer is maybe. What do you think? 800-848-9222, and then we're going to talk with uh, Jeffrey Lyons in a couple of minutes. Let me say hello to another Jeffrey, Jeffrey in New Jersey. Jeffrey, give me your take on this. Hi, Frank. Uh, I, As I said when I called in, I'm an addiction psychiatrist out of Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital and uh, a chief medical officer of several rehabs. Uh, the point is these medications that she was prescribed, the majority of them, the Ativan, um, you mentioned Valium, which most people don't use anymore. And a couple of the others are what we call benzodiazepines. And that's, they, they are, should be used only sparingly. The proper treatment for anxiety is not those medications. Those medications will, put, will erase your memory totally. Uh, and they will make you into a zombie, if you, especially if you add the other meds. Let me point out the most important, and, and the other dangerous drug actually is Ambien. Ambien will wipe out your memory mm. the next after you take it at night, 
and people do horrific things. They drive under the influence. Oh, sure. And We've seen that. Yeah, and they eat. And then people wake up in the morning and say, why do I weigh 400 pounds? Well, look at your refrigerator, and it's empty every morning. But the important thing here is this. Any prescribing physician should be looking up what the patient is taking in terms of control drugs on something we call the prescription monitoring program. And that's true of pharmacists also, especially the first time they prescribe for someone and if they keep prescribing unusual amounts or on a regular basis. There is some responsibility. Uh, well, so it, uh, it, based on your description, it definitely sounds like that's the case. Now, in your role as a psychi- psychologist, you're not able to write prescriptions, right? No, I'm a psychiatrist. Oh, you're a psychiatrist. I'm sorry. Uh, Kenneth misinformed me. Um, so you're able to write prescriptions. When you write someone a prescription, let's say a woman like this that comes to you, and it sounds like she was suffering from severe mental illness. Let's say a woman like this comes to you. How do you know what uh, drugs she might be getting from other other doctors? And um, do you, let's say you do prescribe some of these heavy-duty drugs that could do crazy things to her brain, do you, is, do you have any sort of responsibility to inform the husband, hey, husband, don't leave this woman alone with your three small children? Well, as far as uh, warning the husband uh, to take care, especially if his wife is getting a med- uh, medication that might um, sedate her or make her do things over and over again because she forgets, yes, you have that obligation. But um, more importantly, as I said before, there is an, uh, a national system. Mm. It's based in the state, but talks they all talk to each other, called the Prescription Monitoring Program. And every physician in New Jersey before they write a controlled substance for someone, especially well, at least the first time, but then like quarterly, they have to check the system to see if they're getting these medications from other physicians or other sources. So assuming she was getting these prescriptions legitimately through proper channels with doctors, these doctors and maybe the pharmacists could be in a lot of trouble here. Potentially. But the one thing... Uh, I know that's a lot of medications. I don't know how many she was actually taking at one time. Hopefully, uh, she wasn't. Uh, there, there again, there is responsibility, and uh, uh, there's a lot of overlap there in the medications. Mm-hmm. I mean, additives in terms of uh, what they do. Uh, Je- hey, Jeffrey, thank you very much. I, I'd appreciate. I'd love to stay in touch with you. If you could email me your contact information, maybe when we do segments on this in the future, I could call upon you once in a while. I'd be honored to do that. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, let's hear from the pharmacist perspective before we get to Jeffrey Lyons. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, yeah, I defer a lot to the doctor for a lot of that stuff. Uh, there was a lot of overlap. Um, filling the prescriptions, uh, you would look to see if they're all coming from the same doctor. You feel a little more comfortable. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine one doctor would have written for all of those because, again, the doctor, it, there, was, there was redundancy. Like, there was no need for all of those medicines, she probably could have got away with half, even less. Um, but if it's if it's separate doctors, then that becomes like a, a red flag. You got to reach out. Um, there's uh, the issue. He was right about the reporting system, but that's only for the control drugs. So like there was overlap and interactions with the um, the non-control drugs, which are you, you know you, mm-hmm. you fill them quicker because you're not looking for diversion or abuse because it's um, you know they're they're not that doesn't happen with those kind of drugs um regarding the liability uh 
the doctor, I'm not just pushing it off on the doctor, but like they would know a little more about the patient's situation. Um, so they would, you know, like the doctor said, the husband. So do you think told, the doctor could have got, could get in trouble if they didn't issue a warning to the husband? The, the pharmacist potentially too, but the doctor, right. I would think a little more because like, like you said, you come in here, you, you drop off 10 prescriptions. I'll, I'll get you out fast. Right. You know, I'll, I'll counsel you to the best that I can, but if I don't know, there's a newborn baby. Uh, I don't know. There's post. Well, the, the drugs yeah. sometimes, the medicines sometimes on the prescriptions will have a diagnosis, which helps us along. Sometimes they don't. Um, so you're just filling sometimes blindly. Sure. So I wouldn't know enough to tell the father. You know, listen, sure. do not leave the mother. You know, so that that kind of uh, and, and it was just an awful situation. Okay. And if I was involved in that, I would have felt. Uh, Terrible. Oh, no, I feel terrible not being involved, not knowing anybody, not having anything to do with it. Joe, thank you for the call. Uh, those of you that are holding, if you want to keep holding, we'll get to you. Uh, we're going to talk with Jeffrey, Jeffrey Lyons straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of the great treats of being able to work in radio, there's a lot of fun things about it, but one of the great treats for me is to be able to actually work with and get to know people that you grew up watching, admiring, reading, and that is certainly the case with my next guest. He is not only one of the best film critics in America, he's not only the author of at least seven books, he's writing books literally at a rate faster than I can read them, he is someone with an encyclopedic knowledge of baseball, and he is the middle generation of three generations of media titans. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to Welcome the world's greatest film critic and an author whose forthcoming book is Caviar and War, Cafe Society During World War II, the one and only Jeffrey Lyons. Jeffrey, it's great to talk with you again, my Good friend. Good to see talk to you again. We spent so many years together on other stations, and uh, it was a weekly treat to talk to you guys. Uh, Jeffrey, you are still reviewing movies. You've reviewed, people believe, more films than any critic in history. Making a living as a film critic today, in the year 2023, is that the modern-day equivalent of uh, being a uh, telegraph operator or uh, an elevator (laughs) operator? No, because uh, it's just changed a little bit. Uh, I see movies mostly online now, and I see them on uh, Netflix and places like that. And the industry has evolved. Uh, You know, when you look down the, the, the nominees for Best Picture this year, there aren't many that I'll be thinking about 10 years from now. And uh, they're for other audiences, and they, they give Oscars to, uh, nominations to mega hits that don't need it. And then they sometimes a smaller film can, can benefit a lot more. The, in, the industry has changed, and I've changed with it. And that's why I keep doing other things as well. Well, I want to ask you about the uh, Oscars in just uh-huh. a second. But I, I am intrigued by the uh, title of your next book, Caviar and War. I've read your three most recent books and I think several others. Uh, you've had some great stories about your father's columns, and you tell some of the stories behind the stories. Uh, we last spoke on the radio about the the uh, Hemingway book, which I'm going to ask you about. You've written a number of books about baseball. What's Caviar and War about? Well, 
Carl Sandburg, America's greatest Lincoln scholar, once said to my father, I wish you'd been writing your column during Lincoln's time because it would have made my job to write about Lincoln a lot easier because we would have known what was going on in New York. So, of course, there was no Lion's Den column back in the Civil War. I decided to look up my father's columns during World War II. Hmm. So I have every one of his columns in 40 scrapbooks. And I started on the column of September 1st, 1939, not because it was the day Lily Tomlin was born, which I love to remember. <laughs> it's true. I've told her about that. But because that's the day the official start of World War II. Of course, there had been uh, conflicts before with China invading Manchuria. But I decided September 1st, 1939. And ever since I'm up to 1942 now, I've gone through every one of the columns. I think there are 312 columns a year, each one a thousand words. And I'm picking out the stories of the well-known people, the bold-faced people. And as we're getting closer to the war years, as the isolationist din begins to subside, I'm getting more stories from my father about World War II, about how, uh, for example, today I found a story I hadn't seen before. Uh, Vivian Lee had finished shooting Gone with the Wind, and she went back to London, and uh, Churchill got to, got to look at the movie. He somehow found four hours during the Battle of Britain to watch it, and he came out saying, I'm, I'm numb. Now I have to go back to my war. Uh, little stories like that that really humanize mm. what people went through, and it's, it's a record that I think should be, should be noted. So, and it's a joy. I hear my father's voice. Uh, uh, talking to me about these. And my brothers and I would make nightclub rounds with him when I was a child and growing up when I was a young man, mostly. And you could go one evening, and in one, in one evening, I, I've had tea with the, the Duke of, and Duchess of Windsor, Mickey Mantle, and Gene Kelly on one night. You know, that, that kind of life he lived. And he went home and wrote about them. He I... never wrote with his eye to the keyhole. He didn't write who was going around with who, but he wrote news, newsworthy people, never used gossip, never used the word celebrity. It, you know, I used to think, knowing you as an adult, that you had lived the kind of lifetime that uh, people are w- envious of as soon as they hear about them. But after hearing some of the stories of the things that you witnessed as a child, I now realize you've lived enough adventure in lifetimes, <laughs> not just one. For people that don't know about your father, who may be a little younger. Mm-hmm. Leonard Lyons, probably the most influential columnist in that era, in uh, not just in New York, but around the country. And you you said two things that I want to uh, get you to reemphasize. One, you emphasize kind of the difference between him and someone like Walter Winchell, who was unabashedly a gossip columnist. And the other thing that you said is he would do I thought you just said 312 columns a year. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could read 312 columns know, a year. And don't forget, no word processor, no Internet. And uh, he would come home at night at 1 o'clock in the morning, and he'd spend an hour and a half on the phone dictating word for word some of the later stories that he had gotten that night, rather than saving them for the next day's column, to get them in the next morning's column to beat his uh, competitors. Winchell was the most famous columnist. But Winchell named my father's column. They were friendly enemies for years. Winchell threatened to kill my father once. He never voted in his life. Uh, a thousand people came to my father's funeral, and John Lindsay gave the eulogy, and he said in a business of sharks, he was a prince. One person came to Winchell's funeral, his daughter. Oh, yeah, two people, the rabbi. So <laughs> you, you're, you're judged in part by the way 
uh, you live to how many people show up at your funeral. It, so those, that's the difference between the two of them. If people haven't read your father's columns in a while or they want to know some of the stories behind the stories, a book I recommend, it's uh, over 10 years old now, but I still recommend it. It's just wonderful. It's called Stories My Father Told Me. Well, thank you. No, notes from the Lion's Den. But how would you describe what your father would write about in 312 And it's got a sequel, too, by the way, called What, what, a, time what a Time It Was. was. I have that yeah. one, too, on Each my show. chapter shelf. is anecdotes of the people he would he wrote about um well, he would go to, to to lunch places and then he would go and come home and write the first draft of the column and then he would hand it in and come home and pitch an inning or two to my brothers and me we lived across the street from central park then he'd go out again and go to 13 more places and he'd come home with anecdotes uh for example uh you mentioned hemingway hemingway's best friend besides my father was gary cooper and they were out in montana somewhere and they stopped at a gas station or as they used to call them filling stations and uh, Gary Cooper would write a check, knowing they would never cash the check. They'd frame it. And Hemingway tried it, just to say, and they, 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 didn't, they didn't allow that. They made him pay. Uh, <laughs> stories like that. I'm, I'm not telling it as well as, as, uh, as it was written. But stories that humanize people. Uh, when Mary Hemingway found the body, she called my dad before she told the world, uh, to have him tell the world that Hemingway had passed. So it was largely, the columns were largely a collection of anecdotes that, yes. uh, that the world's greatest sources would give to him exclusively. Yeah, speaking of sources, the day after Pearl Harbor, I think he had six stories from his inside source from the White House. The person who was mentioned most in my dad's column was FDR. The second most was, was Eleanor Roosevelt, and the third most was Hemingway. And Orson Welles was his best friend. I mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt. She did not like uh, Secret Service protection, and she would often come to New York by herself. Can you imagine? And she was sitting on the IRT, as they used to call some of the subways. I don't know if you're old enough to know that they used to be called the IRT, the IMD, and the, then the BMT. And she, she'd be sitting on the IRT, and a sailor got on with his girlfriend and sat down, and they started staring at her. And they said, the sailor said, Miss, uh, excuse me, did anybody tell you you look exactly like Mrs. Roosevelt? And she went into a 10-minute explanation of the New Deal, Lend-Lease, the Dust Bowl, of the president's budget. And as the sailor was getting out with his girlfriend at 14th Street, he looked over his shoulder and says, that's a great imitation. Keep it up. <laughs> those, those, those kind of stories are – it's a true story. They're all they're, – uh, well, they're not always all funny, but, for example, LBJ was in the Navy. He resigned his seat in Congress after Pearl Harbor and joined the Navy. And he was at Pearl Harbor waiting – not at the attack a year or two later – and he was headed to Pearl Harbor, I should say, for some R&R, for rest and recuperation. He was an amateur movie maker, and he left. He, the, the plane is on the tarmac, the propellers are turning, and he told the pilot, wait a minute, I forgot my camera. And he raced back to his barracks. By the time he got back to the, air, to, the, um, to, the, to the takeoff spot, the plane had flown off by a superior officer who had demanded to leave, and the plane was shot down. Oh, my So goodness. there are all sorts of stories like that in it, uh, from, from astonishing to not the mundane, but the humanized. For example, W.C. Fields and, and uh, John Barrymore uh, no, noted elbow benders, as they used to call people. The day after Pearl Harbor, they showed up to enlist, and the sergeant behind the desk threw them out. He thought they had been sent there by the Japanese. Because they were both completely drunk. <laughs> and and uh, he said, my father wrote that there was a, a, a portrait of Queen Victoria in W.C. Fields' bedroom. But on closer inspection, it was a picture of W.C. Fields dressed as Queen Victoria. Uh, 
stories like that. And they, I, and I love finding them because it's part of history. Absolutely. A lot of these people were history making. No doubt and, about it. No doubt about it. Hey, I, I could ask you, we could do a whole hour just uh, on the legacy of uh, Leonard Lyons and what he's meant right. to uh, New York media. Last question I'll ask about him is something that I think a lot of people may not realize, even people that were fans of his back in the day, which is that he was, before he was a columnist, before he was an influential member of the media, he was a lawyer. He was. He was in the first class of St. John's, finished second in his class at St. John's Law School. And years later, 1952, I can remember I was a little boy and I have glimpses of it. He was admitted to practice in front of the Supreme Court. So he brought his whole family, my three brothers and my mother and me. And he knew, uh, I think, five or six of the justices. Hey, Lenny, how you doing? <laughs> From the bench. And meanwhile, lawyers for cases ready to be pleaded or pled looked over, who is this guy? He's got a majority of the court on a first-name basis. we got to get him on our side. And my, one of my brother's godfathers was William O. Douglas. And Douglas's last wife was Kathy, who was about a third his age. And my brother with Douglas, who became a, long, a long-time uh, a, a, a public defender, he said, boy, I hope uh, Mrs. Douglas has an older sister for me. <laughs> uh, hey, um, you, obviously, obviously the whole world has uh, Super Bowl fever, so by all means, I'm going to ask you about baseball. Uh, you are the biggest Red Sox fan in yeah. New York that I'm aware of, while everybody else uh, of uh, your generation was chanting DiMaggio, 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 meaning Joe. You were meaning it for uh, Dom DiMaggio. Well, yes and no. For I'll tell you first, the song goes in Boston. He's better than his brother Joe. He's Dominic DiMaggio. Well, he wasn't better, but he was a great player, too. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. But Joe DiMaggio was a family friend. And one night, my parents had given a party for Ethel Barrymore. And uh, the night before, my father sat with her at Sardi's, and she overheard somebody at the next table say, oh, there's a great play at the Barrymore Theater. She said, excuse me, Lenny, it's the Ethel Barrymore Theater. <laughs> and so my, he, they gave a party for, for Ethel Barrymore, and I woke up. And I heard the, my parents' friends making noise in the living room. When I walked in, I surveyed the place. And the only person I recognized was Joe DiMaggio, who was cowering in fear in the corner. He was so shy. And I looked around. And I, everybody it was a hush. I was in my pajamas. It was 2 in the morning. And I said, Mr. DiMaggio, you're the best guest here. And everybody laughed and applauded. I went to bed. And 35 years later, at an old-timer's day, he called me over and he said, would you still say that? And I said, of course I would, Joe. And I learned later that in the room, the people I so cavalierly dismissed, among others, Ernest Hemingway, Adlai Stevenson, Comden and Green, uh, I think Fred Astaire and Edward G. Robinson, none of whom could hit a curveball the way Joe could. <laughs> so all the more reason uh, I am curious as to how you, a, a lifelong New Yorker, a guy that is an integral part of the fabric of what has made this city from a media perspective and from every other perspective, how does Jeffrey Lyons end up as a Boston Red Sox fan? Frank, why does love have to be explained? <laughs> Why did I marry? Why did this Jewish boy marry a gorgeous Catholic girl from Chicago, who my mother called by the wrong name for a year, hoping to go away? Why? Why? Why do you have to explain love? I have no idea why, but they have been the bane up until 2004. They were the bane of my existence. I would take the D train up to up to Yankee Stadium, and the crowd, those who recognized me from TV, would start yelling, "Lions suck! Lions suck!" And after 2004, I haven't seen one of those caps that said 1918 on them. <laughs> Not one. They've won four times I've... in my lifetime. And, and it's, it's, it's just been great. I've, I've broadcast games in Spanish because I speak Spanish. 
and uh, it's 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 just a wonderful thing to have. And, and well, good yeah. for you. I, I was just always curious about how the uh, the, I the I origin no how that came to be. We're talking with Jeffrey Lyons. If you're interested in the Boston Red Sox, you want to check out his book. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are are sold. It's called The Boston Red Sox All Time All Stars, and it's even if you're not a Red Sox fan, it's a great look at baseball history and Red well, I'll Sox. Tell you, history. you know, Big Poppy wore number thirty four. I found a player who also wore number 34 for the Red Sox in 1952 named Al Poppy. You're kidding. Well, that's I'm sure the... his, or actually Al Pape, but it's close enough. I don't think his wife knows that he, that he played for the <laughs> Red Sox. That's how obscure he was. And I have a whole trivia section. And I went out, this is before Xander Bogarts deserted the ship. But I went around uh, the, the diamond and picked the greatest players at each position. And so, then I have a chapter called, I bet you didn't know, he played for the Red Sox. Some of the players, like Andre Dawson, on their way to Cooperstown, they play for the Red Sox for a week or so or a month. Every time I see John Smoltz, who, as you know, is one of the great uh, Atlanta Braves pitchers. He played, I think, 17, 18 seasons with the, with the Braves and about two weeks for the Red Sox. I said, how could you go into the Hall of Fame with a Atlanta Braves hat? When you played for the Red Sox, you could have gone in with a Red Sox hat. He played for about two weeks when he was done as a player, so he loved that. Humor. Yeah, trust me, as a Met fan, uh, seeing all the Mets uh, not named Seaver and Piazza that ended up in the Hall of Fame, I, uh, I share your frustration. Right. Not, not 100 years worth of frustration, but at least 60 years. Right. All right, uh, let's talk movies. Oscar nominations are out. This is when I sort of begin my sojourn to try to see as many of the Oscar-nominated films in as many categories as possible. But now, having a 14-month-old, it is pretty I difficult know. to see all these movies. Before we get to uh, what you liked, what you weren't crazy about, were there any uh, films that came out last year that you think were great, that were just snubbed, and that were worthy of something like an Oscar nomination and didn't get one? Yeah, the one with Olivia Coleman. Uh, about the light, I think the principle of life. I forget the name of it. She, it's based on the director's life growing up, where his mother worked in a movie theater in England in a small city in England. That was beautiful, and it was it was it was just snow. Oh, was that and the it, Lost Daughter or no, uh, no, Yeah. No. So I, I hadn't seen that uh, either. Maybe it was Joyride. Joyride. These are just so mediocre. I mean, was the film Joyride? Was that it? No. 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 Okay. The, the Fablemans is is it okay? I'm a Big, I think Steven Spielberg's the greatest filmmaker of our time. I'm glad to be alive when Steven Spielberg is making movies. That said, I thought The Fablemans was okay. Uh, it, it just it was too little schmaltzy, and, and it was too long. It was more than two hours. Hitch, I generally don't like it when movies are over two hours. Hitchcock said, tell it in two hours. Anything over two hours, I generally like to see chariots and you know and sandals and swords, not the... Uh, a family nostalgia thing for more than two hours. All right, Empire uh, of Light was that film that Olivia Colman. Yeah. Re- and everything, mentioned. everywhere, at, at uh, all at once, I found impossible to, to follow. Really, I'm the only one of anybody I know who feels that way. I thought she does. Uh, uh, she deserves. Uh, uh, I think uh, Jamie Lee Curtis w- will get the Oscar if there's any prediction because she's overdue. There are a lot of people who are overdue. Bill Nye is long overdue, uh, uh, and he was wonderful in, in living. He was just wonderful. You know, he, he was that willowy, washed-up rock star of, of love, actually. Right. And they do that sometimes. They, they give that for actors like right. Rod Steiger should have won for The Pawnbroker, 
and he won the next year for In the Heat of the Night. I think most is, people would also agree that John Wayne's best picture was not True Grit, but that's the one that he right. got the Oscar for. So um, in terms of films that you really enjoyed, it sounds like it's a, it's a relatively short list from the nominees this year. Yeah, I like I liked the performance of, uh, of uh, uh, In the Whale. Uh, you know, so best Brendan actor, Fraser, uh, yeah. uh, Brendan Fraser. Yeah, you know, he's, he's been around, he's been absent from stardom for a long time, and he he was very poignant. It wasn't just good makeup; it was a it was a it was a poignant, very poignant performance. But for goodness' sake, uh, there, there, there's this. I, I don't know if they're going to investigate it, but one of the movies, Two Leslie, I think it's called, made twenty five thousand dollars total, and they even made fun of it on uh, Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Uh, and the actress Andrea Risenborough, uh got nominated too. Uh, maybe she's deserving, I guess. But uh, a lot of actors got behind it, and in a way, that's good. You don't have to always have a huge, expensive PR budget behind your nominating process. But you know, uh, I think it was uh, Mercedes McCambridge who won an Oscar, and she said, "It's crazy. The whole thing's crazy." Hmm. Uh, it is. So, in terms of absolute must-sees, I remember the year The Artist was nominated. You said to everybody, "Look, I don't see a lot of films more than once. This is one that you absolutely have to see." Is there anything nominated this year that you feel people abso- absolutely, positively must no, see? Absolutely not. Really? But, wow. Uh, okay. No, but uh, if you see uh, the uh, the Avatar, of course, if you haven't seen the first one. I don't know. I, there's going to be another one, I guess. Uh, uh, I, I just wish they wouldn't make a little movie that, that doesn't have $150 million special effects. Mm. Uh, the the uh, Top Gun movie is very well done for what it is. You have to give it credit. It's spectacular videos. It's just astonishing videos. So if you, if you, if you go without expecting anything that will change your life, among these, I guess, uh, Elvis, too. I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of, of much of Elvis's stuff, but I think now we've said everything about Elvis's life. Uh, but there isn't any that's going to be remembered 10 years from now. Tar is a very talky movie, very intellectual film, and it's an art house movie. I guess I'm glad it was nominated. And, and Kate Blanchett is a great, great actress, and she's uh, Spake Place, this conductor who is a very short temper and intellectualizes the, 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 the music. And I'm glad it's there, but I don't think it's going to make much money. Uh, and I don't think the ratings are going to be high either. But if anybody can make it interesting, it'll, it'll be Jimmy Kimmel. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, yeah, he certainly uh, seems to have made this his, uh, his specialty. Uh, talking with Jeffrey Lyons, no one has re- reviewed more films that we're aware of. As far as your concern, Jeffrey, you mentioned how you view movies differently than you did 10, 15, 20 years we ago. Uh, well, I haven't been to a movie theater in over a year. And I used to really enjoy going to the movies what do you see uh, because of the change in my habits your habits everyone's habits as the future of movie theaters can movie theaters still survive five I, ten years i think from it's now? questionable i mean it because it's, it's so expensive to park the car and pay for the gas and get a babysitter and go out and have dinner and it'll cost you more than two hundred dollars maybe for, for a couple mm-hmm. and i think the the streaming services are fine look i believe if a movie is good it does, it, people now have 80-inch TVs in their homes, mm. flat-screen TVs, and I don't think that's – the business has to evolve. It really does, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. There is nothing like going to see a movie like Jaws or, or a terrifying movie like The Exorcist in a theater where you can't get away. 
Uh, but that, that maybe has to be sacrificed. I hope they don't make movies because of the change in the way people are seeing them. But I, I, I'm not worried about the future. Sooner or later, it's also a great time, Frank, to be an actor because there are so many different platforms for your product to be seen. Apple TV, Netflix, Hulu, all those platforms that didn't exist 10 years ago. And there are going to be more of them, too. I think it's great. But I, I just haven't, since, since you and I and most people can't control what's going to happen, I'll sit back and enjoy it. One of the things that AMC is now trying is sort of a dynamic pricing that allows people to pay different prices depending on where their seat is in the theater. Is that something you could see working out or is that the new smell-o-vision? Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. I mean, it's it's almost too complicated because if you don't have access to the best seats and they're a lot cheaper, it's going to be a lousy seat. Right. right. And you're not going to want to do that. If you can wait two weeks or three weeks or a month and see it in the comfort of your home on the big 80 or 50, even a, a, a 50 fin, in screen, then wait. It's not urgent. There really is going to be something like that every time that they try some gimmick. Comfortable chairs, you know, maybe valet service. It's not going to help. One of the things that I've always really admired about you is your skills as an interviewer, whether we're talking television, radio, or even now the printed page. You are able to get people to share stories that they wouldn't share with any other interviewer. And obviously uh, your discussions with Kirk Douglas over the years were were legendary. And I I know uh, the kind of esteem that you held uh, Kirk Douglas in. Well, Mm -hmm. this Friday, I'm getting my Kirk Douglas moment uh, by interviewing uh, William Shatner in uh, in Red Bank. In your view, having done this for a long time, what are the tricks to being a good interviewer? Okay, I'd like to go into an interview, depending on how much time I have, and have the actor say, boy, he did his homework. He prepared, so I'm going to tell him this and that. I had, uh, once I had three days to prepare for an interview with Betty Davis, a one-hour interview with Betty Davis. Wow. This was 20 years before the Internet. The good thing about the Internet is that everybody has access to it. The bad thing about the Internet is that everybody has access to it. I was lucky to have a friend who collected movie clippings from every magazine and newspaper he could get his hands on. And his file on movie actors, he had uh, over a million clippings. And I would come in for do three weeks of research. But this Betty Davis interview, I was told on Friday, you can talk to her on Monday. And I had a wedding in Massachusetts that weekend. So I told the bride and groom what was going on. And then after the ceremony, I sat in the basement with the flower girl helping me with the research and came up with a lot of questions that she absolutely loved. If you come prepared better than anybody, the best example, and I, this is only luck, I had never met Antonio Banderas before. And in those days, I was still doing the junkets where you sit for five minutes and the guy that. from Detroit right. comes after that. And they, you know, and they put the New York people last so that the guy from Oklahoma City can make his flight home. Okay, you get a tired actor at the end of the day. I was probably the 45th interview that Banderas had done that day, and the lights are in his eyes, and he's tired, and he wants, and that's understandable. I knew that he'd been a, a, a musician in, on the streets of Malaga, and he worked in the bullring in Malaga, Spain, where I spent lots of my life in mm. Spain. And I walked in humming the music that they play only in Malaga's bullring and doing the PA announcement advertising the local beer. Cereza Victoria, Malagueña y Esquisita, made in Malaga and it's exquisite. And his eyes lit up and I had a friend for life. 
And the same thing happened with Penelope Cruz. Uh, she did not speak much English when I first met her. Wow. She had memorized her lines for a movie called All the Pretty Horses. Frankie had to subpoena people to see that movie. <laughs> Nobody went to see that movie, right? And I walked in, and she was petrified. And this is at NBC. And I started speaking to her in her dialect of Spanish, which is my second language for all the summers I spent following the Bulls in Spain. And she put her arms around me, and she opened up, and we did an interview for Telemundo. And I, in other words, it's all part of being prepared in a unique way if you can be. If you can't, get everything you can read about that actor from any source and walk in with questions that they've never heard before. Not what was it like working with or what are you going to do next. None of those questions because they've been asked that for four hours before. Find out their first role. I, I interviewed Jason Robards once for the first time, and I knew that his first role – was the rear end of a horse in Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> now, that's unusual. I guarantee you no other actor began that way. And he loved that I had found that out about him. And it opened him up, and he told me how he wanted to play for the New York Giants and all that. And I had a great interview with him. One of the great interviews I've ever had was Mark Hamill. Now, what am I going to ask him besides Star Wars? He did a Room 222 and all that. But he was great. And other actors, who shall remain nameless perhaps, uh, are impossible to interview. They're mountains to climb. Uh, so it depends on the actor as well. It, uh, Robert De Niro doesn't like the process. If yeah, you, sit you could next tell. To him on a flight, he wouldn't talk. To, he wouldn't talk much. If you give him a script, he's Titanic as an actor. So it all depends also on the actor. Tommy Lee Jones can be tough, uh, but if you break through that and ask him a question to let him know that you did your homework, then you're home free. I know that uh, that you've uh, co-authored a couple of books about baseball, more than a couple, with uh, with your brother, and that your brother is uh, is a criminal defense attorney, I believe. Just retired. Y you also have a law degree, which is something that I think many people may not know about you, but you never practiced law. How come? No, I didn't want to. I, I, I'm not ashamed to say I did it, uh, and it, it was a draft deferment. And um, uh, it was a war that was illegal. I didn't demonstrate or anything like that. But I do have the memory of a guy a year ahead of me at Syracuse Law School named Joe Biden. <laughs> I didn't know him. I wish I had. I'm on the next panel. I went to law school in Syracuse where they have two seasons, winter and July 4th. And it was, <laughs> it's true. We went 31 days below zero. And I'm somebody who's been in New York, and I, I, I'm a palm tree guy. I don't get the attraction of skiing. to go. I know. We'll go to an even colder place. We'll pay a lot of money to go all the way up just to come all the way down. I don't want that for a vacation. I want to see palm trees. Let, but, uh, please, go ahead. Continue. No, it's just it was great training, though. It was great training and very, very taught me how to synthesize my thoughts quickly. And, and, and uh, I can write a review quickly. That doesn't mean I'm flippant. That doesn't mean I could write it. Better if I had two hours, but I know how to write for television and radio with uh, all deliberate speed. But the night before I became a critic, Frank, I had dinner with Ruth Gordon, who won the Oscar at the age of 69 and held it up and said, you can't imagine how encouraging a thing like this is. And she said, Sonny, you're starting your career tomorrow. Think twice before you knock somebody mm. else's work. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, that's great advice. Last question, Jeffrey. I know you're a fan of a lot of uh, great Woody Allen films over the mm -hmm. years. There was a very interesting uh, 
profile that PBS did on him, one of the very rare things that Woody would allow himself to sort of open up a bit. Mm -hmm. And the interviewer uh, asked him what I thought was such an interesting question because, like you, he's got a lot of fondness for both sports and motion pictures. And the interviewer asked him, at this point in your life going forward, if you had to choose between never seeing another sporting event again or never seeing another motion picture again, what would you say? I'm going to ask you the same question. I have two children. I don't know which one I love the best. I love them both. I don't know. I can't. If you said to me, you can see any picture, you, well, uh, any picture you want. You, you never see a movie again or you never see a Red Sox game. I really don't know. I wish I could answer that, but they, they're both places in my heart. Because if I say, oh, Red Sox, then it means I'm not giving attention to baseball. But I'm, I'm doing both now. I'm writing baseball trivia questions, and I'm also, uh, I'm also for the radio, and I'm also seeing, still seeing movies. There's no way to decide that. Yeah. Um, I think uh, my, somebody asked my father, which of your four children do you love the best? He said, I love them all alike. I want them to be productive citizens. That's what my that's what I hope for my children. And my son Ben, by the way, is on a new sports show on Amazon Prime. It's called Bonjour Sports. Every morning, Monday through Friday, eight to ten, and then repeated at ten to twelve. Two hours of talk. One of his co-hosts is Amani Toomer, the former Giants Super Bowl hero. And so the sports is a big part of my life. And my son has done film criticism as well. No, I know that. Uh, he's, he's absolutely terrific. It's a shame that, you. Uh, that you guys are always uh, so lazy and not getting any work done. I, mean, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, uh, it is always such a treat to talk with you. I can't wait to do this again. Uh, I want to encourage people to be on the lookout for your forthcoming book, Caviar and War. And uh, if they peruse the terrific Leonard Lyons uh, selections at uh, Amazon, they could search either Leonard Lyons or Jeffrey Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S. They won't be disappointed. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. And one of these days I'm going to get all ten questions right and win that contest. <laughs> We'll, we'll be ready for you, Jeffrey. We'll be All ready. Right. Uh, this, the great Jeffrey Lyons. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I go to extremes. Uh, this was a birthday request from Adam Dweck, who celebrated his birthday on February 3rd, but we're just now getting around to his birthday selections. Happy birthday, Adam Dweck, who I think I only met twice, maybe even once. But he is a friend of um, my friend JFK, who is uh, getting married soon. And we're going to his bachelor party. In uh, no in uh, in April, right? Which is going to be in Atlanta. Heaven forbid it should be in the region that we both live in. But 
Can't win them all. All right, 800-848-9222. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Good morning, Frank. Morning. I, I, lo- I loved your interview with Jeffrey Lyon. Thank I just you. wish I would have asked him a question because he's a specialist, and I always wanted to know from a movie specialist, what did he think um, was Peter Jackson's contribution to the to the lore of J.R.R. Tolkien? Did, in fact, Peter Jackson do the Lord of the Rings justice? Because I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the Tolkien Society, both of America and England, and I have my own thoughts on that, but well, that's a thought for another time. But you said that True Grit was not your favorite John Wayne movie, so I'm going to ask you a two-part question. Sure. One, what is your favorite John Wayne movie, and what, because I, I know you're a lover of the Old West as I am. I taught the Old West for 20 years in college and high school, and I'm just curious, what is your favorite Western, and what is your favorite John Wayne film? My fa- look, I, I love so many John Wayne films. Um, my f- favorite John Wayne film is The Searchers. Uh, that's my favorite. If I had to pick, um, and thanks, Robert, we're out of time. If I had to pick a favorite Western, there are many. It would probably be a Clint Eastwood movie. It w- might be Unforgiven, which I realize is a little bit more modern. It might be the outlaw Josie Wales. Um, if we're talking comedy, I like Blazing Saddles, but uh, I really love Unforgiven. I think it was brilliantly made. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, uh, for the next few days, we have some interesting stuff coming your way. One, tomorrow's the State of the Union. I'm sure we'll do something interesting. Uh, I don't know what. I promise you, we'll be different from what every other radio show is doing. It's one of the most boring nights in terms of political journalism that there is, and we're going to try and find a way to make it less boring. You know who is going to be here tomorrow? Nicholas Meyer. I've spoken with Nicholas Meyer before. Nicholas Meyer is the director of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I figure if I'm going to be moderating a discussion about this on Friday and Saturday, let me at least cheat, right? Let me at least get the guy that wrote and directed the film back on the radio. Last time he was on, we didn't have enough time. And I will kind of get some questions from him that only he would be able to, to know to ask. About the uh, film, so that's that. Although, make no mistake, I'm not going to overshadow Shatner. I want to make sure that Shatner is front and center. A couple of quick notes. I was given some thought to what Robert in Manhattan, who's always such an interesting caller, asked about my favorite Western. There are so many great Westerns, and I love 
uh, the outlaw Josie Wales and unforgettable. You know, I'm a sucker for Clint Eastwood. I love all the Clint Eastwood Western, even the, the, the spaghetti Westerns, which are all a little cheesy because the mouth, the, the, the audio is looped and the dialogue is not synced up with how the actor's lips are moving. Even uh, so you have a, for a few dollars more, fistful of dollars and good, the bad and the ugly, not in that order, but those are all great. Even though they're a little cheesy, but they're, you know, look, Westerns are supposed to be a little cheesy. It's a typical good versus evil morality play. I do like Westerns that deviate from that a little bit. For instance, a a Western musical that was, I think, panned, but it did develop a cult following, which I enjoyed. Paint Your Wagon, a musical Western with Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood. That's terrific. And uh, you don't generally consider this a Western, but one of my favorites, and I may even like this more than Unforgiven, is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. If you're not going to consider that a Western, what is it, right? So it's got to be considered a Western. It's, I know it's a buddy picture, but it kind of is a Western. Same year as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Wild Bunch with Ernest Borgnine, who uh, is just terrific. So there are a lot of great ones, but the only one that I think would alter my answers to what I told Robert might be Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Now, Finally, my mind is at ease because we have determined the cinematic adventure that my father was texting me earlier and quoting from. It is indeed Arthur. Listen, Arthur. There are three books. This is important. Mm -hmm. Take them back to the library. (laughs) Of course, that's funny because he wasn't really he wasn't dying in that moment. And it's a great picture. Great, great film. So now I have responded appropriately uh, to that text message. Okay, Um, a a bunch of people have been patiently holding. We're going to get to as many of your calls as we can. And then uh, I want to do something which I hope will be kind of fun. All these stories about. Uh, The need for term limits to drain the swamp and people being uh, sentenced to prison time that they for crimes they weren't convicted of. And this uh, horrible story of this mom who killed her children. I had to change things up a little bit. So I had something that I was planning on talking about here. We're going to save that for tomorrow because not that it's not that it's heavy, but, you know, I'd like to do something maybe a little bit more fun. Meantime, though. I'm happy to hear from you on any subject. 800-848-9222. Diana is in Manhattan. Hello, Diana. Hi. As always, you do a great show. Thank you. A really great show. Thank you. As as Ed Sullivan would have said. Anyway, uh, your that was one of the best interviews I ever heard. Yours with Jeffrey Lyons, and he is a delight. He is hilarious. He's fun. He's nice. I mean, how great is that? He's not a nasty, bitter reviewer. No names mentioned, but I've heard a few who are really vicious. Uh, no, He's great. I agree with you. I've been. A, I w- I'm a big fan of uh, of Jeffries. Thank you, Diane. Appreciate that. When I start, I was producing. Curtis Lee was syndicated evening show, and it was a great show. We were on 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern, but we were on a lot of great stations. We were on KBC in L.A., WABC in New York. 
um, WTKK in Boston and uh, KMOX, I think, in St. Louis. Uh, Not as great as the stations that we're on, but, you know, know, it was a good show. And uh, it was my... Initially, we would have a different film critic on every Friday. And there was a bunch of film critics we went through, and some of them were very good. And then ultimately, we... um, Jeffrey was just so much better than everybody else that we ended up making Jeffrey the official film critic that we'd use every Friday. So then when Curtis left the radio station that we were both working at and he went over to um, another radio station for four years, Jeffrey was the official film critic of that show on that radio station. So Curtis leaves that radio station and I continued to produce the show that came after it. And for the mm, five or six years that I was there, however many years it was, because time flies, I think six years, for the six years that I was there, we made sure that Jeffrey was the official film critic of that show as well. I don't know what um, I don't know what happened in terms of that situation, but he's not doing the movie reviews there anymore. And uh, it's our benefit because we can use him to do this. And I know he does his own radio stuff, too. uh, But you can easily see why. I mean, to your point, Diana, he is so funny. He's so witty. He knows about everything. I had a list of a a page of potential other subjects that I was going to go over with him. And, um, you know, he knows about bullfighting. When he went to college, he was a kicker. On his football team. I don't think he played much, but the point is, the guy is a renaissance man. He really is. He knows about everything. He's really something. 800-848-9222. I'll continue with your calls in a moment. It's funny. There has been a lot of discussion about lying of late. So one of the things that I have been doing is going back and looking at a lot of the clips of John Lovitz, who played the liar on Saturday Night Live. Do you remember the character, the liar? And I have to confess, part of what jogged my memory for this is when George Santos reprised, excuse me, when John Lovitz reprised his role as George Santos, doing sort of a hybrid of the liar and George Santos on one of the late night talk shows. And the real George Santos didn't appreciate the humor of it. I thought it was hysterical. So I have been going back whenever I have a few free minutes and I have my mobile phone on me, I go to the YouTube and I look up John Lovitz on Saturday Night Live as the liar. The following is a public service message from Pathological Liars Anonymous. Hello, my name is Tommy Flanagan and I'm a member of Pathological Liars Anonymous. In fact, I'm, a, I'm the president of that organization. <laughs> and, I mean, he was just so great in his delivery, in terms of the, um, the ridiculousness of the lies. I think even on his Saturday show, Anthony Weiner referenced how similar George Santos in real life was to this character of the liar. I didn't always lie. No, when I was a kid, I, I told the truth. But uh, then one day I caught, caught stealing money out of my mother's purse, and I lied. I, I told her it was homework, that, that my teacher told me to do it, and, and she got fired. Yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's a ticket. Now, um, I've been doing a lot of research, and there's a lot of psychology behind pathological liars. 
And everybody is now looking at this because of what happened with George Santos. Because, look, there are a lot of politicians that lie. Joe Biden has lied. Uh, Gary Hart has lied. Uh, certainly uh, Dick Blumenthal has lied. A lot of politicians lied. Donald Trump has lied. Bill Clinton has lied. And many others. Many others. But usually th- there's a logic to the lying. And most of them don't lie about something that's so easily verifiable. You know, when Eric Adams, for instance, tells lies about his biography or his history, you know, it's kind of a gray area, and it's usually to make a point, usually to make a point. You know, uh, Curtis Sliwa, for instance, he will lie in a way that just furthers whatever point that he's making. I'll listen to Curtis sometimes, and I'll say, wait a minute, I was in the room for that. That's not how it happened, but it kind of fits in with the narrative structure of a story that he's telling. He doesn't really tell George Santos-style lies. He exaggerates, right? I mean, except in the times that he uh, did those hoaxes for publicity, but that's a separate situation. He's apologized for that. But I've wondered a great deal about the psychology of lying, and I'm not the only one. And they call this pathology of pathological lying. Do you know what they call it? It's in the DSM-5. Fact, factitious disorder. Factitious. Oh, it's not in the DSM-5, excuse me. But they do call this commonly factitious disorder. And there are some psychologists, including Dr. Drew Curtis, who say it should be considered its own diagnosis. And they say it can stem from insecurity, anxiety, low self-worth, or other personality disorders. And the experts say that Congressman Santos has exhibited these signs of being a compulsive liar. If this is a disorder, is it fair to hold him responsible for this? Now, I mean, obviously, I think the answer is yes, especially if he did something like uh, lie about uh, a sworn statement like a campaign finance filing. That's a that's a different ballgame for him. But Beyond George Santos, which who we'll talk about in a moment, but beyond George Santos, it got me thinking, sometimes the lies that you encounter are so over the top and so crazy, and the people telling them lie so consistently that they can't help but be amusing. Now, my wife was telling me about a... Um, someone that she knew in college that was dating a pathological liar. And they were not, it was not amusing. The guy would lie about everything for no reason. And it really, it destroyed the relationship that he was in uh, with my wife's friend and uh, broke her heart. She was devastated. She thought she was going to marry this guy. Turns out every, everything he said was like a Santos situation was a lie. And uh, that woman, I don't think I ever met her, but that woman's doing well now. She got uh, married to another guy and she's got kids and everything. Good for her. But, has there ever been a situation that you've been in where you're exposed to someone that is such a brazen, outrageous liar that it's funny? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Someone that lies so much and so pants-on-fire-esque like John Lovett's who played the liar. Lied about my age and joined the army. I was, uh, I was 13 at the time. Yeah. 
I went to Vietnam, and I was injured catching a mortar shell in my teeth. And they made me a three-star general. And, and, and then I got a job in journalism running for the National Inquiry Geographic. <laughs> so that's entertaining. Have you ever encountered a liar so brave, brazen that you can't help but be entertained? The closest I came to that was my experience palling around about 22 years ago with the great Solomon King. Solomon King, I only knew him for four years. I will never forget this man. Solomon King, you may have heard of. I've played some of his music from time to time. He's passed away. But he was a great singer. Not a good singer, a great singer. One of the best I've ever heard. His master song in the United States was She Wears My Ring. But um, a lot of his music you can't find nowadays, at least not digitally. A lot of it was on record. But there's a lot of great uh, Solomon King songs. And now he really wasn't born Solomon King. He was born Alan Levy. And then he became, he had a desire to um, start a, a, an entertainment career. So he became a lounge singer by the name of Randy Leeds. Now, he then claimed in the 60s to have had a near-death experience and then died on the table. And Jesus came to him, even though he was Jewish, Jesus came to him and showed him um, the truth, the light, the way. And at that moment, the lounge singer of Randy Leeds was dead. The um, Oklahoma, the Kentucky-born Oklahoman Alan Levy was dead. And Solomon King was born. And he dedicated the rest of his life pretty much to singing gospel, gospel music. But he was, while very entertaining and very nice... The biggest liar that I've ever met in my life. One day I'm going to bring in some some tapes of um, the interview, the interviews that I've done with him uh, over the years. It was just on television, and I have to have it transferred from VHS. But just to give you an idea, you could ask him about anything, and he would lie about it. Absolutely anything. And he would lie about nine out of ten things. Then you'd find the thing that sounded the most outrageous And that would be the thing that he would be telling the truth about. For instance, you know, I remember the day that I met him, he's wearing a sweatsuit. Just basically, he looks like he's wearing pajamas, wearing a blue sweatsuit. And uh, my friend says to him, and he was a mentor to my friend Vic Christopher, who to this day is the greatest ladies man I've ever met. But uh, Vic or his other protege, uh, Tim, would say to him, he would say, uh, hey, King, they would call him King. King, what outfit you got on there? And keep in mind, he's wearing what looks like pajamas. Not particularly well-made pajamas either. And he would say, without batting an eye, he would say uh, something to the effect of, Oh, yeah, this is the the most expensive jumpsuit in the world. It was designed for me personally by Johnny Versace right before he died of AIDS. This uh, retails, you can't even buy it retail, but if you could... It would go for about $5,000. I mean, he would lie about everything. Hey, uh, King, what are you working on now? I'm working on a film called uh, Transition. It's an Indian movie. We got some people involved in the, in the cast who are in the cast of the new Ocean's Eleven. No, he's not working on the movie. And, and that he would create these conversations with George Clooney and others that never took place. Very entertaining. Very entertaining. 
Hey, uh, King, you ever meet uh, William Shatner? I met him many times, yeah. He's, uh, he's Canadian, and mother of my children's Canadian. And uh, I, do you, were you guys friends? I wouldn't say we were friends. We were friendly. He, uh, he, he knew she wears my ring. And he would lie about everything. He was amazing. You could throw any name at him, and he would make up a story about it. He, I, I would say, um, King, would you think of um, would you think of President Reagan? Well, I knew Ron Reagan. Uh, we, Ronnie, and I used to run around together when he was an actor, and uh, we stayed in touch when he became president. He would have me down at the White House, and then uh, not so much George Bush, uh, but I work with whoever the president is. Like he would just make. He's not working with presidents. He was a great singer, but he was incapable of telling the truth. I mean, sometimes the things that he would say would be so outrageous. He would claim that he was involved in orgies with the Beatles and stuff, and then that turned out to be true. And um, he was an incredible guy. He started singing professionally in the 50s, and he's got great records. And I have several on vinyl. He Like, uh, I'm going to live till I die. He was the first white singer taken on tour with Billie Holiday. Um, he was part of Elvis Presley's background, background group, the Jordanaires. But again, you don't know if any of this is true because he would make stuff up. That is the most entertaining pathological liar I've ever encountered. And you got a picture. Here's a guy who's six foot eight, um, a giant. He's a giant. He towers over everybody. Any room he is, he's in. So you immediately look to him. You go to a restaurant and he makes up some story to tell the waiter, makes up some story to tell the manager. And again, this is without any thinking. It's just instinctual. And, of course, any meal that you have is free, you know. Um, and um, he w- sang really until the 80s, really. But uh, his real talent was making up lies because even though they were so easily disproven, they were still so entertaining. And uh, you just ask him anything. You ask him about his height. Uh, King, how tall are you? Well, I uh, was always six foot eight. Now I'm six foot seven and a half. I actually shrank, and I haven't been six foot eight in many years. Now the guy's still six foot eight. Now who am I to dispute his height? Well, I'm the guy that could see that he's six foot eight. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Have you ever encountered someone that was such a brazen liar that it was entertaining? If so, who? If so, what were the circumstances? Obviously, if you meet somebody that bilks you out of your home or bilks you out of uh, a whole bunch of money or something along those lines, that's not fun. I'd love a fun story about lying. Or if you've lied and it worked out to be something fun or funny. Not that we condone lying, but I'd love to know what it was. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Carol in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. I love your in- interview with Jeffrey Lyons. I love him. I, I just can listen to him forever. I used to listen to him when he used, when he came on Joe Piscopo's show. Well, yeah, thank you. He was mm-hmm. uh, he was absolutely terrific. Uh, not only today, but just in general, he is a uh, a real talent, a bright guy, a brilliant guy, and as uh, the prior caller Diana said, he just has such a great energy about him. Yes. Oh, I wanted to mention something. I did know somebody that used to lie about everything. And, you know, I have proof of the things that I've done. I work in music publishing. I work in the entertainment industry. I mean, I, I was in England for several years. I have proof of everything that I've done. But there are people that 
when you ask it, ask them about proof, they can never show it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Carol. Thank you. My my position is very clear, right? I accept everything everybody says at face value. And if I know they're lying, I still accept it at face value because I am perpetually in need of meeting another Solomon King, someone whose lies are so outrageous and so audacious that um, they can't possibly be telling the truth. I knew another fellow like that who I don't want to say who it is because he has a a relative that listens to the program and I don't want to, and he he passed away also and I don't want to be insulting to uh, the family, but uh, he was another one of these guys that was just boom, 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 boom. No thinking, (laughs) just lying. Um, So uh, speaking of George Santos, and again, I try to avoid uh, mentioning George Santos because it's one of these stories that's just over covered as far as I'm concerned, but I have to bring this to your attention. You have to wonder what kind of job George Santos is doing hiring staff right now. Because who would want to work for this guy? This guy is probably the most controversial person in Congress right now. So um, after a little over a week of working with embattled Congressman George Santos, a fellow by the name of Derek Myers was informed that he would not be getting a permanent job. So during that tense conversation, Santos also offered some parting advice to Derek Myers. He said, uh, stop going to Columbia for your diluted Botox. That's what George Santos is telling to this guy the day he's telling him he's not getting a job. So the exchange was captured on a bizarre audio file that Myers said he recorded in Santos's office on Capitol Hill. So just understand what happened. He was meeting privately with George Santos, and he tape-recorded George Santos without his permission. And during the conversation, Santos cited Myers' recent legal troubles that stemmed from his work as a reporter. You can imagine, it's got to be tough to get staff right now. I would almost like to go work for George Santos right now because you know it's going to be a short-term job and you know it's just going to be just a total train wreck. Now, I'm very happy here, but if I ever get fired from here, I would try to go work for George Santos just for the entertainment value. It would be like a Solomon King situation again. Um, so Santos cited Myers' recent legal troubles that stemmed from his work as a reporter. So for Santos... This was potentially a reason to remove him from the team. Now, Myers was stunned by this hypocrisy. Santos fabricated all of his biography and route to getting elected last year, and he's currently facing more criminal investigations than I could count. So Myers tells one media outlet, I'm thinking to myself, I'm a threat and concern to this institution. George Santos, you're George Santos. So Myers like the other people on Santos's staff these days, has a fairly non-traditional background for a staffer. His experience and the conversation that he captured on tape underscores the sort of unusual atmosphere in Santos's office as he and his small team deal with the fallout from this cascade of controversies. This guy, Myers, was a local news reporter from Ohio, and he faced unusual criminal charges last year after he published surreptitiously recorded audio 
of courtroom testimony that he said he obtained from a source. The criminal case, which is in limbo, sparked a national outcry from press freedom organizations who rushed to his defense. So understand what he did. He secretly recorded audio and then used it in his work as a journalist. And so Santos tells him that he's afraid that he can't hire him because of this controversy involving the leaked audio. Now, what does Myers do? He totally proves George Santos's point. He secretly records George Santos and then runs to the media to play this audio recording. Here's a small portion of the conversation. So we felt we felt at that time that the public should be allowed to hear that testimony. Can I oh, this is your office. You do no, it. No, 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 no. This is your this is your defense, or not even defense. Your case, your story itself. The fact that somebody signs an opt out. Do you know the legal implications of mean what that means? Opt out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he he chose in the court, granted him that discretion. Yes. So, no offense to you, please don't take any offense. You have no right to violate something that the court already has granted. So, so I'm just hearing you explain, and I'm just sharing to you where it becomes problematic there. Can you believe? Uh, first of all, I can't believe any of this conversation. I can't believe Myers, who already is known for getting in trouble, secretly taping things, and then leaking that audio, is doing the same thing to George Santos. And I love this high horse that George Santos is sitting on, judging everybody. I mean, you're listening to him. This guy is living in a glass house with a giant stack of stones that he's using to play ping pong. So this guy, in this recorded conversation, which is very entertaining, if you know what each of them is bringing to the table, they're discussing Meyer's future and Santos and um, this fella didn't stick to the topic at hand. The discussion began with Santos admiring Meyer's tie. You can have it if you want, Meyer said, adding that he bought them at thrift stores for two dollars. His ties are from thrift stores, Santos exclaims later. He says he paid two dollars from him for them. The congressman then asked for candy, which he said his father brought from Brazil, which he then shared with Myers, who tried to cut to the chase. Are you firing me? So the response from Santos, who had been remarking on the taste of the candy, is garbled at first. But Santos gave Myers a chance to tell his story, which began with a trip to Bogota for a Botox treatment. According to Myers, He had been covering a local mass murder trial before leaving halfway through to go to Columbia to get my Botox. It's like $100, but it's $400 here. I spent a lot more than that on Botox, but I trust the people, Santos replied. Myers continues explaining, but Santos interrupted with his worry about Myers' past. It's not concerning to us. It's concerning to this institution. George Santos is concerned for the institution of the House of Representatives. You cannot make this stuff up. Uh, it is wild. Wild stuff. 800-848-9222. So far, I'm disappointed that we don't have any good stories of uh, entertaining lies or liars. What about you, Matt Blaze? you have somebody? That I know is a pathological liar? Yeah. I had a friend of mine 
who was a big exaggerator. I don't know that it was like a a damaging liar or somebody who. Well, I'm not did saying damaging, but an inability to tell the truth. Yeah, it was very. Everything was always exaggerated. Everything he said was always a lot bigger than it really was in real life, whether to make somebody look bad or to make himself look better. It was one of those type of people. Yeah. See, that almost makes more sense than the George Santos or Solomon King situation, which you, you know, you uh, you make up things just for the sake of making them up. I remember we were out with Solomon King one time, uh, my friend Vic, my friend Tim, Solomon King and me, and we're at the uh, the old Tribeca Grand Hotel. And I don't know anything about pop singers. Even 23 years ago, I didn't. But one of the popular bands at the time was NSYNC. And so Tim, who was very in tune with all this stuff, Tim points to like, somebody in a general direction. And he says, King, you know, that's, uh, that's Chris from NSYNC. Why don't you go say hello? So Solomon King goes to talk to this guy for a good five minutes. And it looks like they're having a good conversation. But the guy that he's talking to is not Chris from NSYNC. It is another guy that was standing near Chris from NSYNC. And then uh, Solomon King comes back to us at, at the bar and says, uh, oh, yeah, you know, we we just had a good conversation. I think we're probably going to be working on something very soon. Uh, he's a fan of mine, and uh, I'm a fan of his, and we're going to be working on something soon. And then we had to point out politely to not disturb the universe that he's created that, uh, no, that was Chris from NSYNC. And then he brought Vic over with him this time, and they had a different conversation. All right, 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yes, hi, yes, Frank. I'd like to say that I knew an, an older, elderly guy that used to tell me he was in the Army. He used to imply he was in the Army. The truth is he went through World War II making motion pictures in Astoria Studios for the U.S. Army. So he was technically maybe in the Army, but he never was in the Army. And he said, oh, I was in Japan. And it's they made these movies, these Western movies in Japan, <clears throat> where the, uh, the Japanese wore Western clothes and the, uh, the the whites they brought over to Japan, uh, it, it goes to their history that Japan was at one time a, a, a white country How did you that know? was invaded by people from China that was a group of these people were the Japanese that, uh, that, that left China because they were attacked by other warlords. And they found, they sent the scouts out to the ocean and they found what was Japan, and there was a group of people from Russia that. Um, Tom, how did we get here? I, I'm just curious. Right? I, I don't understand. I, I, so you told me you, you met this one guy who lied about being in the no, army. I knew him in the neighborhood. Right, but but then w- how did we get down this Japan Russia white people? Uh, because he used to he used they they made these movies as. Oh, well, after World War Two, and the the, the people that uh, were, lived in Japan were called Ainus. Oh, they were all right, whites. Tom. Thank you very and much. They- I think we're a little off the beaten path there, uh, Tom. But I appreciate the effort, such as it was. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Rob is on Staten Island. Hello, Rob. Hi. How are you, Tom? 
Uh, Frank, actually. So I worked at one point with the building department, and we had an, in, an inspector. When you're an inspector, um, you know, you're at the mercy of this guy, so you have to listen to his stories. This guy was just, he would go on and on and on. Droving, you know, he said he was in this army in Brazil. He'd drive a helicopter upside down, chopping people's heads off. It went on and on crazy. The worst, though, was when 9-11 happened, we're standing out there because we were with the building department. Unfortunately, we're watching the building. It's a, you know, it's starting to lean. He's standing there laughing about, you know, that it was hit by some termite bombs and this and that. And there was a guard, excuse me, not a guard, a correction officer looking at him like, are you out of your mind? There's people jumping out the window when you're laughing. So the next day, we have to go search the buildings. Mm. He's gone for two weeks. He says, he finally shows up. We're like, what happened? He says that his son died in the World Trade Center. We're like, you had a son? Yeah. He was an ambulance driver. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you never told us. Oh, his mother was a prostitute. We raised him. This guy was went on forever. It was just, the entertainment was unbelievable. But unfortunately, he, he also hurt a lot of people. I can imagine. If you, if you were an elevator company, you would have to sit there and <laughs> listen to this guy. And because he was the one that was signing off. And you're like, well, you just got to listen. And it was unbelievable. Anyway, great show, and you have a great day. Thank hey, you. Uh, thank you, Rob. I appreciate you sharing that. See, that's the kind of person that I'm talking about. All right, those of you that are holding, if you want to uh, continue to do so, you're certainly welcome to. Meantime, we are going to give uh, the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222, an opportunity to win $1,000 if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Good to see you once again. Now tell me, honey, how you've been. I see that you found a new love. My very best to you and him. I see your eyes still have their sparkle. Your smile this is the great Solomon King. Uh, singing Goodbye, My Old Gal. Listen to this. Listen to this song. I'd love to hear this requested on Cousin Brucie. Before my feelings start to show Now that's a voice. And he, he was very talented. I mean, it sounds like what Jerry Vale would sound like if Jerry Vale were a slightly better singer. Um, and the other thing he could do is you could give him any five words as long as it was not as long as the words included the word love in the title and it wasn't already a song that existed like all you need is love or love is a many splendid thing 
you could give many five words with the word love in it, and he would instantly write you a song if you told him what genre of music you wanted, right? And um, he was really just such a talent. So, yeah, I would love to hear Cousin Brucey play a little bit more Salmon King. Wouldn't it be something if he had a whole resurgence and he became the kind of star posthumously that he always lied about being in real life? I had another friend that I knew in radio who was a big liar, um, and it led to litigation. He was more of a con artist. That's the... Uh, in fact, it would not surprise me if he and George Santos were actually friends because he lived on Long Island as well. I don't want to get in trouble because uh, he, he, I've been involved with litiga- in litigation with that guy before. So I'm not going to uh, mention that. All right. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls momentarily. But for now, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Let us say hello to Marty in Baltimore. Hello, Marty. Hello, Frank. Uh, Marty, have you heard this segment before? Oh, yes. Yeah, I played uh, a couple months ago. All right. Okay, great. All right, so if you know the rules, we'll get started. Okay. All right. What device is commonly used to make telephone calls? A phone. What is two multiplied by two? Four. What state is Atlantic City in? New Jersey. Who is the current Speaker of the House of Representatives? McCarthy. Who was John Kerry's running mate in 2004? You got me. Uh, name John, also a liar. Oh, John McCain. No, almost. <laughs> he wanted McCain, uh, but McCain turned him down. It was John Edwards. John oh, Edwards yeah. who, who lied about a great deal. Hey, Marty, I'm sorry you didn't win, and I'm sorry okay. we, we don't have a consolation prize no to give problem. you. But we'll send you a giant case of, uh, of satisfaction. Okay, All thanks. Right. Thank you, Marty. Appreciate it. All right. Um, so... Um, that's that. Yeah, John Edwards. Isn't it amazing? The guy was almost vice president. He was almost president. He had two very good runs in 04 and 08, right? There was a lot of talk that he could be the nominee. And all of a sudden, now, not only is he yesterday's news, he's forgotten. It's wild. So it's very interesting. Oh, let me say hello to Ina because she's been waiting a while. Let me say hello to her. Hello, Ina. Ina? All right. Ina had something else to do. I don't blame her. Okay. So it's very interesting. My mom is a lot like me. She's a clutterer. She doesn't like to throw things away. And her significant other, is a lo- who she lives with, is a lot like my wife in that they like to streamline things and get rid of junk and clutter. So right now, my mom and her longtime companion are in the process of of trying to get rid of a lot of my old things, which remain at uh, my house. And I'm so glad I'm not there for this because it would break my heart to see my old VHS tapes get thrown away and all this other stuff get thrown away. But And I've tried. I've gone through a lot of stuff with her, and I've approved throwing away certain things. And I've said if there's anything else that needs to be – that you just can't bear to have in the house, I'll get a storage facility and put it in there. And um, she comes across this book. And it was a book that was given to me 
by uh, Gary Milius, who is the owner of Ohika Castle. It was given to me about 16 years ago. And it's a book. It's a Ohika Castle. It's called Monument to Survival. It's a beautiful hardcover coffee table book. And it's uh, by uh, Ellen Schaefer and Joan Sergal. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ohika Castle. It's a castle on Long Island. It's a wedding venue. I think Anthony Weiner got married there in a wedding officiated by Bill Clinton. And it's really a beautiful uh, property. And the book is very nice. So you could tell this book was kind of a collector's item. And it was given to me in 2007 or so by the owner of Ohika Castle when I went and had lunch there. And I kind of – it's shrink-wrapped. It's in plastic. It's never been opened because I knew this was going to be a special thing. But clearly not special enough to think about it again. So I threw it on top of a massive pile of books at my mother's house. And there it has remained since 2007. So my mom is cleaning out these things, and uh, she sends me a text message and says, is this book yours? I said, yes, that's mine. So her longtime companion says, ah, throw it out. He never even opened it. He clearly doesn't want it. So my mom very, very adroitly, she says, oh, let me look this up after she does see that it is mine. She looks this up, this book, which I knew was valuable, but she looks up this book and she sees that it's selling used on a website called Abe Books for $950, $950. Now, there are other versions of it that are less expensive. There are two versions that are selling used for $425. There's one that claims to be a new version for $500, but... The point is, it's a valuable book. So so far, the lowest price anyone has seen for it is $425 online. But I think in this condition, brand new, shrink-wrapped, I could probably list it for $1,000, right? So it's – I mean it's really I, – I think there was only a finite number of versions with this hardcover that were ever made. So both my wife and my mother – are saying, well, you know, you could use the money. Why don't you sell it? But now, and look, on one hand, what they're saying makes total sense because I had totally forgotten about this book for the last 16 years. And in some respects, if I am able to sell it for, let's say, $500, that's $500 of found money. However, as somebody that would like to pass on a library to my heirs when I go, What a great addition to my library. Additionally, if it's worth $500 now, think of how much it'll be worth 10 years from now, 20 years from now. No, it's no guarantee that it's going to go up in value. But I would think there's a reasonable expectation that it would. So I kind of want to – I know this may sound totally irrational to you, but I kind of want to hold on to this book now. I mean, what would you do? Would you sell it, clear up the space that my mom is trying to create, get $500 that we could use to pay the babysitter or pay our utility bills? We just got our property tax assessment. Our property taxes are going up at a time when, you know, we're not getting any extra money. So 
Would you sell the book? Would you keep the book? I am in the keep camp, but I am fighting a losing battle. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Uh, it's 1-800-848-9222. want to wish a happy birthday to my cousin, Jason Morano. He is my second cousin. We are both descendants of Charlie Morano, who was the first Morano born in America. Uh, although Charlie's given name was, you guessed it, Carmine. So uh, Jason is... Uh, is a uh, is a grand a grandson of my uncle Louis, who I never met. He died before I was born. But my grandfather and his grandfather were were brothers. And you know who else? Speaking of William Shatner, you know who else's birthday it is today? James Spader. What what I did over the weekend is I went back and watched the four episodes of the practice that set up Boston Legal as a series. Because Boston Legal with William Shatner and James Spader was a spinoff from the practice. And I have to tell you, the interaction and the warmth and the camaraderie between James Spader and William Shatner, and this is one of the things that I'm going to ask him about on Friday and Saturday, it just jumps off the screen. Jumps off the screen. It's really quite impressive. And uh, James Spader is 63 years old today. That is, I think, easily the best James Spader performance I've ever seen is him as Alan Shore alongside, um, you know, William Shatner as Denny Crane. Also, Chris Rock's birthday today. He's 57. And uh, from what I understand, uh, Will Smith is first in line to give him birthday punches. We'll see where that goes. All right. 800-848-9222. We'll do 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight, not by Andy B., whose loss we're still mourning, but by Stevie G. and the Congestion Pricing Advocates. Uh, without further ado, it is time for you to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Roger! Yes, hi, uh... A caller called in to read a show last night and claimed there is not one veteran call in all of New York City. Heck, there ought to be one in each borough, for crying out loud. We have a nice one up in Worcester. It's clean. It's a nice building, and the residents participate in daily operations. Mike, 
Morning, Frank. You know, I was good friends with Solomon King. I co-wrote She Wears My Ring with him. And after it hit the charts, we did a road trip in a 64 Caddy convertible, L.A. to New York. It was me, the King, and in the back seat was Bill Shatner and Ronnie Reagan. What a trip. Mike! Yeah, that's a ticket. <laughs> Hello, hey, Mike. Hey, what's up, Frank? Yes. Uh, Frank, real quick, your comrade, Sidney Rosenbaum, Rosenberg, he needs to get his shine box. He couldn't shine your shoes. Or Curtis, and I'm proud to be second generation Italian American Caucasian in my country. Good, Fred. Hey, Frank. Hello. Oh. John. Hey, Frank. Question: I'm Sicilian. Do I qualify for reparations? <laughs> That's a good question, Steve. How dare you? Republicans don't talk about visa violations because China is the biggest visa violator. Hey, you got to protect your business partners. Anybody who went after Fauci is as dumb as the day is long. Pete. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle. Jose. Hey, sell the book, Frank. Sell the book. Time is here. 16 years you had it already. Sell the book. Jack. Thanks for the T-shirt, Frank. I like and finally, Jerry. Everybody that listens to Curtis Lee is out of their minds. Boycott Curtis Lee the way he talks about Frank. Thank you, Jerry. Wow. Thank you. I'm not urging a boycott of anybody, least of all me. Frank Morano, good day.